main event at home. And I'll tell you, if this is anything like Tuesday night, Katie, bar the door. Get your bowl of peanut butter, peanuts now, popcorn, whatever you're having. Sandy Barr and Dutch Savage are both down at ringside. I do believe we are going to have a pair of referees for this one. You're paid to wrestle in the ring. Don Owen, Don Owen yelling, you're paid to wrestle Ladies in the ring. Ladies and gentlemen, the next event be the best two out of three falls or to a TV time limit. There for this bout here, Dutch Savage will be the referee on the floor and Sandy Barr in the ring. Introducing in this corner, 250 pounds from Las Vegas, Playboy Buddy Rose. Rose wants to start it. Piper says, all right, we'll have at it. And they're outside the ring. They started. And into the second row of chairs. And thank goodness that that gentleman sitting there was agile enough to get out of the way. Gathered together from the cosmic reaches of the universe, here in this great hall of justice are the most powerful forces of good ever assembled. The last of the titans. In the passion and death of their struggle, the very art that had raised them to such Olympian heights was lost. Their techniques vanished. Three, five, oh, one, two, five, go! I was there in the backstage, weapons like came around. All right, welcome to the Titans of Wrestling. Uh, no, uh, Parv has not been unceremoniously replaced uh, due not, to low ratings. Uh, not yet, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not yet, anyway. No, today's show is actually going to be uh, the first in, in a planned series of periodic uh, quote-unquote specials uh, hosted by myself, Kelly Nelson. Um and the purpose of these specials will be to delve into even more obscure footage uh, than uh, Backland era WWF. Um, the plan is to like go right into, you know, the old territories. And for you listeners out there who aren't sure what uh, I mean when I say territories, well, let me say back in the old days, you know, what we know as the WWE now, an international phenomenon. Back in the, the old days in the 70s, it was just a Northeast-based territory, like a kingdom, basically, um, based around New York City. And you had all these other areas in North America um, that had their own promotions. And uh, 
you've probably heard maybe of the Memphis Territory, the famous uh, world-class territory of, of the Von Erich family, my own hometown, Calgary, had their own territory, Stampede Wrestling. Um, but today, we are going to be looking at what was the Portland Territory, Portland, Oregon, Pacific Northwest. Um, it's pretty obscure, um, as even, you know, the, the obscure uh, territories I just mentioned are. Portland is something that only in recent years has really seen the light of day amongst uh, hardcore wrestling fans. Um, today we're going to look at Portland wrestling from the late 1970s. So we're continuing sort of uh, with our uh, theme of uh, late 70s uh, wrestling watching on Titans of Wrestling. Um, besides myself, uh, today we're joined by Titans of Wrestling co-founder James. Hi. And we are also joined by a fellow poster at the wonderful ProWrestlingOnly.com message board. Uh, he's known on the board as Superstar Sleaze, but in real life, he is Martin from Boston. Hey, yo. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, it's the three of us today, and we're going to be looking at Portland wrestling. Um, I don't profess to be an expert on Portland at all, and I don't think my uh, fellow guests profess to be experts on Portland wrestling either. Um, uh, speak for yourself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess no, I'm I... the only one. No. Um, you know, so we're not going to do uh, like a, a scholarly look at the uh, at Portland wrestling. Um, so, you know, John, if you're listening, I doubt you are. Uh, but anyway, if you're listening, please don't attack us later and then and, and write lengthy posts on PWO about uh, you know what we screwed up as far as uh, uh, talking about Portland is concerned. Um, just before we start, I'd like to sort of throw out a few thank yous um, to a few people out there. Firstly, um, there's a big thank you to the ProWrestlingOnly.com message board, uh, specifically Will and Charles, the... Uh, men behind the scenes there. Uh, basically, if it wasn't for the ProWrestlingOnly.com message board or PWO, um, none of this would be happening. I think it's fair to say, um, you know, this is how I've met James, this is how I've met Martin, Parv, Chad, uh, Johnny Sorrow, Pete, a whole bunch of guys uh, got into podcasting through the board and, you know, learned a lot through the board. Um, it's a great place. It's... Uh, you know, so unique as far as wrestling boards are concerned, I think. And yeah, it's brought a lot of people together recently. So thank you guys. And because we're talking about Portland, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention two specific posters from Pro Wrestling Only. Uh, the first is Dylan Hales, Dylan Waco on PWO. Uh, basically, uh, one of Dylan's claims to fame is his uh, passion for Playboy Buddy Rose sort of the big star of Portland wrestling during the time we're going to be looking at. And, you know, he's done, you know, tireless research into Buddy. Um, and then recently, um, Matt D from PWO has picked up sort of uh, the Buddy torch and, and, and ran with it um, and has really, you know, gone into some, like, really heavy analysis into Buddy Rose and into 1979 Portland wrestling. On, on the PWO board. So uh, thank you guys. You guys have really uh, done a bang-up job, like far more than I could ever articulate. Uh, God, 
Um, it's embarrassing <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> and uh, lastly, I'll just I'll, I'll throw out a thank you to Parv for uh, putting this all together, and uh, well, of course, you too, James, um, and 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 letting me um, uh, do my own thing here on Titans of Wrestling. I think this is going to be chirp the show. Yeah, <laughs> I think this will be pretty fun. Um, and so, yeah, uh, just before we start, uh, Martin, maybe since you're, you're new around here, um, what Parv usually likes to do is do like a, you know, a little introduction as far as your uh, history as a, as a wrestling fan. You don't have to go too detailed, but uh, yeah, just uh, maybe a little, little bit of info on uh, who you are and how you uh, got into wrestling and all that. All right. Hi, I'm Martin. I'm a wrestling addict. <laughs> And uh, so I'm from Boston. I'm living out every uh, smart mark stereotype right now. I'm doing this from my mom's basement. <laughs> so I'm only 24 years old, so a little bit younger than everybody else. I'm uh, pretty jealous that everybody else kind of got a head start on me. So I'm trying to make up for it by uh, watching all this stuff now. So it's kind of cool because everything is uh, brand new to me. I feel like some people come in knowing the what they know from their childhood and then are exposed to this, whereas what they were exposed in their childhood is new to me, too. So I have to watch all the 80s WWF that everybody else watched already. So that's what I've been doing a lot of recently was 80s WWF, and now I'm doing uh, late 70s Portland. Pretty excited about that. And I uh, started in the Monday Night Wars. Uncle exposed to me uh, actually just next door. We live in a duplex. So uh, just next door is where I first watched wrestling, watched Nitro and Raw, and uh, pretty much was a fan of WCW more than WWF. Uh, Mom didn't really like the uh, the misogynistic angles of the WWF, so <laughs> that's what uh, she put laid the hammer down on the WWF, but she would let me watch Nitro because she loved the luchadors. She was a big fan of Chris Jericho, and my parents loved Raven. To this day, you'll... Uh, Whenever we, like, ask for something or quote-unquote whine, they'll be like, what about me? What about dad? Or what about me? What about mom? So Raven's a big, big deal in our house for every reason. So a lot of WCW love. Um, I was really sad when they got bought out. So that was uh, – so then I had to switch to WWF. And, um, you know, I actually fell out of watching wrestling for about two years in middle school because of it. And then I picked it back up because my dad bought a scrambler. He uh, taped WrestleMania 19, showed it to me. Shawn Michaels was back. And I was uh, I hated Shawn Michaels in late 97 before the band took place with the DX. I saw him back, and I was like, I, that intrigued me. And I saw Brock, and I instantly fell in love with Brock, who I thought was just the best. And I still, I'm still pretty much a Brock Mark, but this is back when I was younger, so I was really impressionable then. And, uh, you know, I still watch the current product. I pretty much only watch Raw. Uh, and I've uh, been to the past couple of WrestleManias, which has been pretty cool. And I've uh, just been watching uh, 80s wrestling now. I really enjoy Crockett and uh, All Japan, 80s and 90s. So that's my wrestling watching in a nutshell. Yeah, your, um, your analysis of 80s WWF tag wrestling is, is unbelievable, really. You've, I mean... You've oh, yeah. gone through a ton and, and wrote it up on PWO. It's uh, really cool. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I guess I can plug my one claim to fame, Islanders Strike Force. Yes. It's pretty much, it's it's really good. Uh, Tama versus Rick Martel, Martel versus Haku. Pretty much everything else has already been watched or by somebody else, but for whatever reason, that one was uh, hidden still. Yeah, I, I remember at the time, like I was a huge um, WWF fan at the time, and specifically I was really into tag teams right um, from the get-go, so 86, 87, right around that the time you've been writing about. And um, and then I, I'm a huge Tito Santana fan, always been a big fan of Rick Martel too. So yeah, Strike Force, I was a huge fan of theirs. And I remember that whole feud, but at that time, you couldn't, or at least I couldn't see those matches that they were having. Because they were on, like, MSG. Oh, right, yeah, they would be on the MSG network. Boston. Yeah. I think there was maybe one on Saturday night's main event, but I can't remember. Anyway, so, yeah, so much of that is still still unexplored, you know, by myself. Because you just couldn't see it at that time. Um, it's wonderful. I mean, that's, it's like you said, I mean, it's all new to you. You can go back and, and, and see all this stuff. And they just, they, they filmed so many shows back then. It's just unbelievable it, it's yeah, that's what's like the best about the wwf is the filming of the house shows you don't always get that in the other promotions so right no no not at all i think like they were almost uh completely unique in that regard yeah. but they had the advantages of having you know the better cable channels and, and you know they were the top promotion well, yeah each of those arenas had networks msg there's neston in boston oh i forgot to mention i'm from boston so there's Nesson in Boston and uh, Prism in Philadelphia. Yeah, Philadelphia. And I think there's also um, Capital Center in... Oh, yeah, there should be a network, local network in D.C. too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that, that goes back, I mean, as James and I are, are watching, you know, that the MSG stuff and the Philly stuff, the Prism stuff goes back, you know, into the 70s. And so even before the explosion, the 80s explosion, they were filming their house shows so yeah it's really cool and now you're delving into um wcw early 90s that should be interesting yeah i've actually watched most of that stuff i've watched all the pay-per-view stuff before because i own like a ton of the wwe sets from going back when i was like 14 but i haven't watched a lot of the tv stuff so i'm looking forward to that i'm a big wcw fan of the 90s yeah, that was, uh, I think, my favorite time for it, too. Cause that was when it was first available in Canada, was 91, 92. And, yeah, that was a dark period for wrestling, of course, or, like, wrestling fandom where, you know, you had to basically pretend you you weren't a wrestling fan. Or if you found, you know, in high school, I can remember, like, the cool kids finding out that, you know, my friends and I were wrestling fans and, and being, like, you know... Embarrassed, and it was a total shameful huh. admission at that time. But there was a lot of really fun stuff going on um, in WCW and WWF too. I have, you know, major fond memories of that time because it was when wrestling was like a total, like underground secret club sort of thing that you yeah. can never. It's kind of like that again today, but not really. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is, but it. It's even back, even in the early 90s, it was even more, you know, a, a pariah thing. It was, it was totally like the worst possible secret obsession you could have was being a wrestling fan. Almost. I, I mean, I knew zero 
people who liked wrestling in high school and college, and I went to the University of Michigan, 40,000 people on that campus, and I still couldn't find a person who liked wrestling. <laughs> yeah. No, today it's true. It, it's very, very much like an underground thing again and, and not cool. I guess that's maybe the best way of putting it or one way. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's more listeners – or more listeners. Uh, there's more – people that watch wrestling out there then will admit it. It's kind of like oh, porn. Sure. You know, they bring in billions, they gross billions of dollars, but no one watches it anywhere, you know? Right. Oh, so yeah. They're like, out there. I'm often the guy who gets other people to admit to being wrestling fans, or at least watching <laughs> wrestling, because it, it seems like they need one person to, you know, boldly say, yeah, I watch wrestling. I like wrestling, yeah. you know, fuck you. And then they'll finally start <laughs> saying, oh, yeah, I like Roddy Piper, you know, I like Macho Man. You know, I yeah. sometimes still watch, you know, and so, yeah, it's it's totally like a big phenomenon, obviously, and, yeah. and a lot of people love it, but yeah, it's it's still, you know, kind of, uh, it'll always have that sort of taint of whatever, you know, but that's fine, that we like it that way, right? I think we like but, it, that oh, yeah. is, <laughs> is kind of, you know, scandalous in a way. <laughs> so, um, James, do you have any any questions for Martin before we... Uh, no, I'm just a little bit shocked that, uh, you know, when I started wrestling, Martin was negative five years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I was, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm the youngest besides Dylan's younger brother on the board or. Yeah. Yeah. The right. other young people. I don't think that. I, was... yeah. I was going to mention that. Yeah. You're sort of the, the child prodigy of PWO because <laughs> most of the posters are at least the most vocal posters on pwr are, are at least in their 30s you know right. that's yeah. one reason that i really gravitated to the board um is because it, it's it's like my generation of fans in a lot of ways right uh, so yeah pwo is like the perfect spot and yeah you know no, there's not too many younger guys than yourself at least that have made themselves known um age-wise i don't think yeah so yeah. no it's cool Portland and firstly you know before we get into the analysis of what we're the, what we've watched um just for you know people out there that have no idea what Portland was all about I'll just um do a bit of history here don't want to get too heavy into it but the territory itself um you can trace back you know Portland wrestling to at least 1925 and it probably you know, predated that. But 1925 was when the Owen family first became involved in Portland wrestling. And that's important because basically from 1925 to the end of Portland wrestling as an entity in 1992, uh, the Owen family uh, were the promoters, owners of the territory. And specifically from 1942 onwards, Don Owen was the uh, promoter of Portland. So he put in 50 years 
as the promoter of Portland Wrestling. Which, Jeez. Yeah, that's. I know there's some other promoters. <laughs> other promoters over the years had similar longevity, but that's got to be almost the, the, the longest, I would think. Um, his father, Herb Owen, got involved in, in wrestling in 1925. And I did a bit of research. You know, I didn't get too heavy into it. I'll admit uh, Wikipedia was a, a major source. Um, uh, I, I think there's maybe some books out there, but uh, it's hard to find. And actually, I just learned recently that Meltzer in the latest Observer, one of the latest Observers, did a big uh, piece on the history of Portland wrestling, apparently, um, to coincide with the du death of uh, Dutch Savage. Which, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, a couple months ago, but Meltzer obviously... Um, often falls behind in doing his uh, bios of guys. So I, I gather neither of you guys have read that. No. I actually don't uh -huh. subscribe to The Observer. I know I, I feel like I might be a heretic there. but Oh, I no. don't either. I, 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 years <laughs> ago, I. Um, when I lived in Victoria, actually, I had a friend who had a subscription. So for about four years, I had like a secondhand subscription to The Observer. But that was that ended... Uh, Two year, uh, yeah, two years ago. So I haven't uh, read an Observer in two years, but I would love to uh, read this uh, history piece because actually, what got me interested or sort of intrigued in Portland in the first place was a bio that Meltzer wrote after Buddy Rose died in 2009. And actually, I do a lot of the historical information uh, besides Wikipedia is taken from uh, Meltzer's Buddy Rose bio, which was in the May 13th, 2009 Observer. Um, so as I was saying, uh, Don Owen's father, Herb Owen, founded Portland Wrestling in 1925. According to Wikipedia, it was, uh, and, you know, and you got to take this with a grain of salt, but the story that they had on there was interesting. Basically, some guy from Australia, um, I think his name was Time. Anyway, he had founded wrestling in Portland in 1925, and then Herb Owen was sort of his assistant. And according to Wikipedia, what Herb did was basically kind of usurp the the promotion from him kind of by getting this Australian man. I don't know if he got him deported or somehow he, he got him. It, it sounded like banned from coming back to the States after he went back to Australia, I think on a visit. And basically while he was gone to Australia, Herbo and uh, took over the territory and uh, screwed him out of uh, the promotion, which is, you know, pretty much par for the course when it comes yeah. to wrestling promoting. <laughs> that's pretty carny. I, yeah, I definitely am. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hoping that's the true story, the true start of Portland wrestling, because it's the perfect carny beginning. Oh, anyway. I'm, I'm sure it's absolutely true. That sounds <laughs> perfect. Yeah. So anyway, Herb was the owner of the territory until 1942 when he passed away, and his son Don inherited the territory at that time. And like I just mentioned, Don would end up running it from 42 to 92, so 50 years. Um, during the TV era, uh, Portland uh, Wrestling, or Wrestling in Portland was on TV beginning in July 1953, and it lasted until December 1991. Um, it, it switched a few channels in the Portland area, but still it was an uninterrupted run of 38 years. And at that time, only one other show in the States, uh, Meet the Press, which I think was Meet the Press. Was it a syndicated show or is? Yeah, I think I, I do believe so. Yeah. Anyway, so only Meet the Press was had been on TV longer 
than Portland wrestling out of all the possible television shows um, in the United States. This is according to Meltzer, so it's a little more credible than Wikipedia. So, yeah, that's an impressive length because a lot of TV shows, wrestling TV shows, started earlier than 1953, obviously, right? Right. But they they let they went off the air at some point, right? Um, yeah. The only thing I can think of, and I'm I'm no expert, is soap operas in America are pretty old and they still run. So I don't know if there was yeah, a soap that's a opera good... that would have started before then. Yeah, I know time. some soap operas even started as radio shows. Oh, um, uh, right. 30s. Yeah. Yeah. Guiding Light. I don't know if that one's still on. But no, Guiding Light, much to the chagrin of my grandmother, is, is <laughs> not still on. It's gone. But Guy yeah, Light was definitely God. one that started as a radio show in the 30s. Yeah, so you would think some of those soap operas. But anyway, it sounds good. 38 years, right. though. I, I, at least for a wrestling show, it had to be like the longest. Yeah, that's a pretty long tenure. It is. Yeah. So, so screw you, uh, Monday Night Raw. Portland <laughs> Wrestling. You still have a long way to go to, to catch uh, Portland Wrestling's record. And amongst, uh, you know, a few other uh, wrestling shows, obviously. <laughs> George yeah, and a lot, a lot of those front row fans of Portland I think, <laughs> were there since 1925. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, probably. Yeah, we'll get into that later because, yeah, the, the, the locals, the front row crew at Portland is uh, an interesting bunch of dudes, people, for sure. <laughs> um, so let's see. The TV show was uh, taped live and shown live um, until 1979. Um, so right around the time we're, we're watching footage, actually. Um, and then it was moved to 11 p.m. So originally, I think it was on at 8 live. And then there was a complaint. Uh, the head of the station, KPTV in Portland, uh, happened to see a bloody match. And Meltzer didn't um, specify which match it was. Um, Matt D. in his reviews on PWO speculates it was a match involving the sheep herders, maybe, maybe because, you know, they're known for having bloody matches. But anyway, that was sort of the, the last straw that um, had them move the show to being taped and then shown later. But the show actually became more popular then because people would go to the show and then hurry home afterwards and then watch themselves on TV, right? Which was Yeah, the announcer actually, um, you know, pushes this point. On commentary, but tells people to drive home safely. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And maybe I should mention now the longtime voice of Portland wrestling was a man named Frank Bonema. Um, he started in the mid '60s um, as the the announcer, the commentator, and it and runs through until 1982. Um, so yeah, Portland is one of those areas where you often hear like you know their show was the highest rated you know show in the in the city in the area. Similar to, like, you know, you hear stories of the AWA, their TV show having, you know, what, 80% of the audience at a given time. And Memphis, often people quote as being, like, um, a show that, you know, almost the whole city watched or, you know, somewhat exaggerated, of course. But Portland um, had, you know, huge, huge viewership during most, you know, most of its years until the very end. Um, the territory was also isolated. In that, you know, the Pacific Northwest, even to this day, is kind of um, isolated from the rest of the continental rest of the United States in a way. Um, it's a huge metropolitan area, 
but kind of, uh, you know, on its own in the, in the corner there. And so Portland often had to rely on homegrown stars or older stars, um, younger stars, guys just getting their start. In the 60s, you know, Mad Dog Vachon, the first territory where he became a big star was Portland. Uh, the first territory where Pat Patterson uh, became a big star was Portland. And then, you know, you, usually Portland was a place where you 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 moved on from to bigger and better things. Um, Roddy Piper would be an example of, of a guy later that um, moved on to bigger and better things. But there was a lot of guys that stayed for a long time in Portland, uh, Buddy Rose being one, probably the most famous, but Dutch Savage also um, was there for a long time. Lonnie Maine, a famous wrestler in the 70s, was there for a long time. And Portland was part of like this sort of connection with West Coast territories where um, a lot of guys who wrestled in Portland also wrestled in Vancouver at the same time, wrestled in San Francisco at the same time, even L.A., um, it's interesting. Uh, I've always been interested in like that whole connection where the there was like a talent exchange going on between the because they were the closest, so it was easy to swap talent there. Um, let's see what else. Uh, basically, yeah, the show was you know it was actually uh, farmed out into other um, TV markets. San Francisco being one later in the late '70s when um, that territory was dying. Um, Seattle had their own show. Like they filmed when they did a taping in Portland at the sports arena, they would tape uh, one and a half hours for, for the Portland market and then tape one hour for uh, the Seattle market or for their other markets. And I'm not sure if we have any of that footage available, um, but I'm not an expert on it. Um, Portland also was uh, the last territory to sort of use the two out of three falls format for uh, main events, which uh, gives it a, a unique um, flavor to their matches, for sure. And, uh, yeah, the building it was held in was the Portland Sports Arena. It, I mean, Meltzer claims it can hold 3,000 people. I just, it doesn't seem like it's that big when you watch it um, on TV, but uh, maybe. And uh, Don Owen actually owned the building outright. Um, so that was an advantage he had. He didn't have to pay any rent or anything. So basically he had pretty low overhead when it came to his costs as a promoter. And yeah, they point that out on the, um, most recently, uh, wrestling culture podcast, how that was a, a really big plus for him and how they, people were, con Dylan and others were confused about why other promoters didn't do that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it yeah. was just, um, it was originally a bowling alley, apparently. Oh, Okay. I guess, it, you know, someone wanted... It was just probably good timing. Someone wanted to sell. Yeah. And um, today it still exists as um, a place where church services are held, apparently, um, in Portland. Um, and they ran shows once a week in Portland, but once a month they would also... Oh, so once a week on Saturdays, and that was the, the TV taping. But once a month on Tuesdays, they would also ha have a show. So there was a, I mean, these guys wrestled in the same uh, city like five or six times a month, basically. So you really had to keep things fresh. Um, it's, it's, that's another thing that makes Portland impressive is just the sheer amount of uh, time that they, they wrestled in front of the same audience week after week, you know, year after year. It's something that, you know, nobody does anymore, of course. <laughs>
So anyway, um, yeah, let's get into the the footage that we watched. Um, basically, I sort of put together a selection of um, basically five. Let's see, two, four, five. Basically, six matches and a few angles and some promos. Um, the footage that this or the this comes from a collection of it was actually Playboy Buddy Rose um, in the late 70s, early VCR. It was called the Quasar Time Machine. Um, so this predated VHS and Beta. Um, he was, you know, uh, a student of wrestling himself. He, he wanted to analyze his performances. I'm sure, I mean, it was an ego thing, too, to have, like, a collection of his, his, his greatest hits. So basically, he, he taped shows for years and years at a time when hardly anybody had a video recorder. And basically, uh, for years, the tapes just sat in his garage. Um, and in the Pacific Northwest, it rains a lot, so the tapes, you know, were damaged, you know, with water and um, mildew and all that, I guess. Uh-huh. And it was a friend of his, um, I think his name is Rich Patterson. Anyway, he finally convinced Buddy to, you know, you know, can I have the footage? I'll take it. But, you know, you're not doing anything with it. And it took this Patterson guy five years and a thousand dollars to be able to restore the footage and convert it to DVD. And if anyone out there has seen this footage, you know that it's, you know, the quality is, is definitely poor. But, you know, the historical importance of this footage is so high that, you know, if it wasn't for Buddy taping these matches, it, this would be lost. And, um for hardcore fans like us, you know, we know, you know, basically anything before 1980, you know, it's, it's pretty rare and it's, it, you have to take what you can get when it comes to wrestling footage. Cause you know, before VCRs became common, it just wasn't, you know, people weren't saving this stuff and you just, you know, it's, it's, you have to rely on a lot of luck to be able to stumble upon um, anything prior to 1980 uh, for so many, so many of the old territories. So, what we're looking at today is basically from 1979, with one exception. One matches from 1980, mm-hmm. and basically, one of the main things Portland is known for is the like a feud, a historic feud between uh, Playboy Buddy Rose and Rowdy Roddy Piper. <laughs> Piper became, you know, ultra super famous in the 1980s, one of the the main iconic figures of wrestling. And 
This one was when he was quite young. Buddy Rose is, you know, outside of the, the ProWrestlingOnly.com crowd, is probably a guy that, A, you've never heard of at all, or B, if you have heard of him, you think of him as a jobber, very fat, um, you know, uh, sad figure almost. Definitely yeah, not I'll somewhere. say one thing, though. In the defense of Shawn Michaels, who does get some crap on uh, Pro Wrestling Only, he does a really good job to make sure there's like a buddy match on all of his DVDs that the WWE releases of him. Right. So that's actually where I knew Buddy from even before I started, you know, going on Pro Wrestling Only. And those were good matches. I really like the Rockers Rose Summers matches because Shawn did that and puts his matches on the DVDs. That's right. I mean, he's held in super high regard amongst, you know, professional wrestlers themselves as being like this almost myth mythical figure who, you know, for years and years in Portland was, was like, like a, ahead of his time and, and, and doing all these great things in the ring and, you know, stories were passed down and stuff. And I got into wrestling in 1986, that, that year that, you know, the Midnight Rockers were feuding with um, Rose and, and Doug Somers in, in AWA. And I was a huge Midnight Rockers fan, like right from the get-go. In, in Canada, in Calgary, uh, we could watch the uh, AWA show, the ESPN show. It was available on um, what is basically Canada's equivalent of ESPN, TSN. And so I did have access to AWA. I've mentioned a ton of times in the past how frustrating it was to try to watch AWA because the time slots kept changing. It was all over the place. It was on in the middle of the night. It was on in the morning, in the afternoon. Anyway, but I also collected the magazines, and yeah, so I knew uh, of Buddy Rose, and the magazines, though, at the time, just trashed that team of Buddy Rose and Doug Somers. There was <laughs> oh, a... Really? I see, I don't know anything about what the magazines reported back Oh, then. yeah, because the magazines would often have, like, sort of um, quasi-shoot um, uh, articles or, or opinions, if you read between the lines sort of thing, and what they always did, the after mags, they would have rankings. And they would have, even to this day, if you if you get an issue of PWI, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, they would have top ten wrestlers, you know, and they had a top ten tag team ranking list every month. And Rose and Somers were always like number nine or number ten, even though they were the AWA tag team champions. Um, they were always ranked very low, and at the top were always the Road Warriors and and the WWF tag champs, whoever they were at the time, and the NWA tag champs, whoever they were at the time. But yeah, and it was always, they would always write how Rose and Somers, you know, cheated for every match, never won a match fairly, that, you know, they were just barely hanging on to the titles night in, night out. And so you never got like any kind of uh, idea that Buddy Rose was a great wrestler from that. And no then, respect, no respect. No, no respect. And then after that, that was pretty much Buddy's last run in, in as far as like a national uh promotion as being like a guy that wasn't a total jobber because that's what would happen uh, right it's a blow away diet which i've actually never seen because as we said i'm pretty young so yeah never, i haven't watched it yeah it's once you see one you've seen them all i've seen them all yeah, yeah. That, that was my first exposure to buddy rose was you know summer of 1990 and i thought all that stuff was great uh i, I i'm not embarrassed to admit that Oh no! Yeah, it's, it's it's it was totally strange because otherwise, outside of those vignettes, he was just a job guy. And 
I don't recall him even being on TV all that often wrestling. I think he was on a Saturday Night's Main Event, maybe, where yeah. he wrestled Kerry Von Erich. Yeah, he jobbed for Kerry Von Erich, and I think oh, that was Kerry's debut, and it might have been Buddy Rose's debut also, but I'm not positive. About yeah, that. I think you. I think you're maybe right. Um, 1990 was actually a year where I'd sort of fallen out of being a wrestling fan, um, or for whatever reason. Um, 89, 90, I, I wasn't watching too much, um, at that time. I stopped collecting the mags, but, uh, yeah, I do remember Buddy being yeah. around. I saw him at a uh, house show here in Wichita on, uh, September 2nd, I believe, 1990, and I might have some pictures, I'll have to put them up, but, uh, it was opening match or the second match of Buddy Rose versus Jimmy Snuka. And uh, I remember my dad wasn't a fan, but uh, he thought Buddy Rose was great. He liked guys that bumped big, you know, like Mr. Perfect was his favorite. And yeah. uh, so I'm, I just remember my dad being very impressed with Buddy Rose at that house show. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, Buddy, I mean, he was even then, I mean, he was starting to get pretty obese but he was oh, still yeah. <laughs> he was still a very good performer, right? I mean, and then yeah, after 1990, I, th I think he stayed around in the WWF until about 92 ish, maybe. Oh, really? I wow. think so, because I remember reading in a an Observer once where um, it was around the time that the steroid scandal was first hitting, and there was a lot of heat on Vince McMahon, and he gave this big speech to the locker room, being, you know. Okay, everyone's got to uh, stay off the juice and all this sort of stuff. And how does it go? <laughs> Buddy was mentioned in that somehow. <laughs> but oh, obviously, Buddy wasn't off the juice. Everybody looked like Buddy. Yeah. That's what Vince yeah. said. Everyone looked like him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, no. There was, a, there was a funny punchline, but I can't think of it now. It was something like, oh, don't worry, Buddy. You know, that's your gimmick. You don't have to worry about I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, so that would have been 92, I think. So, But then anyways, yeah, he basically went back, I think, and wrestled mostly in the Portland area um, indie scene for the rest of his... He may have even been wrestling very shortly up to his death. I mean, he wasn't very old when he died. Um, 53, I want to say, or so. But yeah, and there's also the embarrassing uh, match where the ring collapses. I'm not sure if that was actually planned or not. Have you guys seen that? No. Oh, I did indie not know show. about this. Uh, some indie show in uh, probably the Portland area, I'd say 95, 96, where the ring sinks in like he sinks into the <laughs> ring. Um, and the, the whole ring collapses around him. And, yeah, it's on YouTube. It's easy to find, I think. I don't know. I feel like that's a work around his weight, but I, I don't I know. I think so. It's often referred to as, like, proof that Buddy in the end, it was like, you know, sad end to him, you know, fat Elvis type, you know, sort of end yeah. to him. But it had to be. I would think it's a work. Uh, anyway, a lot know. of people know Buddy. That would be another reason you would know Buddy is from that video clip, because it's somewhat famous uh, as like a funny wrestle crap type moment or whatever you want to call it. So anyway, yeah, Buddy was the man in Portland. Um, he started there in 1976. Um, prior to that, he'd wrestled in Dallas right before that and he actually started in the AWA because he he's like Ric Flair and a bunch of other guys he was a Minneapolis or a Minnesota kid um big athlete growing up big into hockey apparently and um 
he got into the AWA uh, around the same time Flair did, and was he actually did some referee work too. He refereed um, was a big match in 1975, a title change where uh, Nick Bockwinkel defeated Vern Gagne for the AWA World Title, and Vern had held the title for I believe seven or eight years at that point. Um, and that was in Chicago, and, and Buddy was actually the ref for that match. Wow. Yeah, in 75. And then, basically, I think Dallas was his first uh, non-AWA territory. And then um, he got the call to come to Portland. And he was his first night in Portland. He was in the main event. He drove all the way from Dallas to Portland in one shot and showed up. And unbeknownst to him, they'd been you know um, running these promotional or promo clips of him or something on TV in Portland for weeks, um, like um, in anticipation of him coming, like this great Buddy Rose is coming or whatever. And Buddy didn't even know they were doing that. And he shows up and he's in the main event and he's teamed with Jesse Ventura, uh, who was known as the great Ventura at that time <laughs> in Portland. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they wrestled, I want to say, Jimmy Snuka and Dutch Savage. Uh, Snuka was big in Portland at that time. Um, and Dutch Savage is um, one of the legends, the all-time legends. So right from the get-go, Buddy was main eventing in Portland. pick up this footage in 1979 we're like three years into buddy's run um he's teamed with uh his longtime partner in crime ed wiskowski who is probably best known as uh, colonel de beers in the 1980s in awa doing the uh, south african apartheid racist gimmick which uh, i remember reading about when i was a kid and thinking oh my god what the hell is this all about yeah i was i was uncomfortable with that you know, as an eight-year-old, so I think, yeah, because yeah. you know, <laughs> he, he, he bloodied Jimmy Snuka. I don't know if you guys have seen this um, in the AWA 1986, where he gave uh, Jimmy Snuka two pile drivers on the the concrete and yeah. everywhere. And of course, the 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 theme was that he he hated Jimmy Snuka because Snuka was you know a man of color and, <laughs> and it just yeah, like you said, even as an eight-year-old, we're about the same age, and I was eight nine years old. And, yeah, I just remember thinking, oh, my God, it was so much more violent and real than what was going on in the, the safe uh, cartoon world of the WWF, or relatively safe. Oh, yeah. And how did, how did Colonel De Beers make it from town to town with that gimmick? I think he'd get his ass kicked. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I've got to watch more of that stuff. I, I've hardly watched any of it, really. Um, yeah, I've never watched a De Beers match, even though I've heard of the gimmick from i've known the gimmick for a while but I, i've never bothered watching one but yeah it sounds pretty uh crazy for the time yeah, yeah it was i mean it uh, it was coming right at the end i think of that era where you could get away with doing really racist out uh, like overtly overtly racist gimmicks i guess anyway so yeah. at 79 he was known as he was ed wiskowski he was rose's partner and as we start off uh like i said we're looking at uh uh, Buddy Rose and Roddy Piper. In 1979, Piper came into Portland, I believe, right at the beginning of the year. And after finishing up like a long stretch in the LA territory, 
where he first became a big star as um, like the Piper we know and love, Crazy Heel. And so he just got into Portland. He'd been here for a couple months. And so the premise for this first bit that we're watching is um, it's basically a heel gang, heel stable of uh, Playboy Buddy Rose, Ed Wiskowski, uh, Rowdy Ruddy Piper, and a man named Killer Tim Brooks, <laughs> who is like a total classic, you know, old school type wrestler in look and in, and in the name, of course. Um, he, and he is bad news for slaves. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea what that means, but he is bad news for slaves. Just like, watch out for this guy. Oh, God. He had another name, too. They kept, what else did they refer to him as? I think they referred to him as Bad News. He had that shirt on. That's oh, what yeah. I bad News looks. Yeah. yeah, Bad News for Slaves. I did not get the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they kept alternating between calling him Killer Brooks and, and Bad News Brooks. Either way, both are, are, are fantastic names. But he's, yeah. He, yeah, he's a Georgia guy, right, or something? I was gonna say the only other thing I can think about with Brooks being involved was an angle in Georgia where uh, I want to say Larry Zabisco placed a bounty on somebody's head, anyway, and Brooks was like the guy that went to collect the bounty or something. But I yeah, could have that totally wrong. That's I, I have this right. weird, crazy memory, and I have like a '97 PWI Almanac. And I remember, like, the Georgia National Heavyweight title was listed, and that that's where I'd seen his name before, and I, like, had forgotten about it until he was here. I was like, oh, that's the guy from the Georgia National Heavyweight title thing. So yeah. There you go. That's that's how I knew Brooks. I know. <laughs> I, and I, I didn't do my usual bio research for, for this show that I've been doing. Uh, I know. <laughs> I, I thought I would change it up. And, 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 you know, I didn't want to do, like, another, you know, Kelly runs through the, the bios thing. But I should have did some research now on Tim Brooks because I feel kind of embarrassed that I don't have much to say other than like vague memories of him being in Georgia in 1982 or something. But yeah. anyway, um, so we'll go into this. The first thing we, we got here is, is a group promo with these four guys. And it's it's pretty it sets things up pretty good uh, right off the bat. Um, you know, the, the Buddy Rose is a wheelbarrow full of wrestling belts. That are, um, I think some of them are Portland for sure. I think some of the rest of the belts are from, I want to say San Francisco, because at the time, uh, Buddy was uh, main eventing in San Francisco. But they also mentioned Texas and defending tag team, uh, Rose and Wisconsin defending tag team titles in Texas. So I'm not yeah. sure about that. And um, Piper comes off crazy, you know, right from the get-go, talking a mile a minute. I'll mention straight away, I'm like, Piper is one of my all-time favorites. Um, specifically, you know, I'll be a snob, uh, you know, and a classic Roddy Piper pre-1987. You know, after 1987, he sort of is like a totally different uh, person uh, as far as, you know, he goes from being cool to, to, to lame in, in, in quite uh, quite a quick uh, period of time. But in the late 70s, uh, Piper was, was in his prime, basically. Uh, he was awesome. Um, so, yeah, I'll let you guys uh, talk about this a bit more. I've, I've yapped on for quite a while now. Uh, Martin, what are your thoughts about this opening uh, promo we got here? Um, I think there was uh, – these promos were pretty good about the details because they hinted that there was previous animosity, but they realized they could make more money together, right? which foreshadows the angle following the match, which is mm -hmm. what – that was pretty much my big takeaway from the promo besides having all the belts. Mm-hmm. James? Yeah, uh, I don't have any specific memories of the promo other than it was, it was great. And uh, 
this is my first exposure to Killer Brooks, and uh, I got the impression that they let him out of work release so he could come <laughs> to the tapings, and then he had to go straight back. And, straight back. and he, he, I had to, I popped when uh, I couldn't believe he's just casually smoking a cigarette uh, up there, and uh, he just looked like a, uh, you know, like an ex-con or a guy that's still <laughs> yeah. in prison. Yeah, yeah, you definitely don't want to meet uh, Tim Brooks in a dark alleyway. No, no, and I instantly just, I just love the guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Even though he didn't look like that, he's a very lovable type. Um, <laughs> I like how Buddy, at one point, he, I think Brooks is, like, playing with the belts in the in the wheelbarrow or something, and, and Buddy says, oh, Brooks looks like a kid at Christmas with his presents, <laughs> <laughs> which was a great line. But, yeah, it, 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 it's pretty cool uh, to see all four of them together. And then... So then we have a, a second promo that um, in this one, Wiskowski, they're talking about um, Stan the Man Stasiak, I think, at this point. And, and of course, um, some wrestling fans may know Stan the Man Stasiak as briefly being the WWF, um, WWF world champion in 1973 as a transition guy between uh, Pedro Morales and Bruno San Martino, and also the master of the heart punch, of course. Um, He's also my dad's least favorite wrestler. <laughs> really? I, I figured out, he, my dad is uh, he when he watched wrestling it was like only the Morales reign, and yeah. he thought Stasiak sucked. And then I had him watch the Stasiak match on this that we watched, and he's like, he still sucks. He yeah. hates them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll get to that later. But yes, Stan the Man does make a in-ring appearance uh, later on. Um, but Wiskowski claimed that in this promo, Stasiak had more MSG main events in the last 10 years than any other man. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. That was great carny work right there. That was <laughs> awesome. Well, in Portland, you know, you could get away with saying shit like that back in the day when no one knew what was going on in the other yeah. territories. But, I mean, yeah, we could rattle off probably a good uh, 10, maybe 20 guys that had more main events than Stan did. Um, but, no, Stan was a main eventer, he, and um, he wrestled Bruno Pedro. But, of course, you know, Bruno and Pedro had more main events than Stacey. <laughs> just, just a few. Just a slightly few more. Um, and they, what was the, the group was dubbed the Fearsome Foursome, I have written down here. Is that, that was the, what the heels were dubbed? Because I I, 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 I actually missed that. Okay, because I have, then I have a note that the Fearsome Foursome was also the name of the Los Angeles Rams defense in the 1960s. Right. Uh, that would make sense. <laughs> yeah. That, so I, I uh, anyway, like I said uh, earlier, I, I I probably watched this part about a month ago. But anyway, so now we get into the match, and it's an eight-man tag. Uh, the four heels, Rose, Wiskowski, Piper, and Brooks, against a, a pretty uh, motley collection of <laughs> baby faces <laughs> that, like, uh, that I can recall watching in the in recent memory. Anyway, we have uh, firstly Adrian Adonis, uh, a man that you know. Doesn't scream babyface when you hear that name. No. Um, you have Ron Starr, who I know as Rotten Ron Starr in, in Stampede Wrestling in the 80s, and who was a total heel, scumbag, sleazebag. <laughs> <laughs> you have George Wells, who is most famous for wrestling uh, Jake Roberts in uh, WrestleMania 2, and probably right. the, the yeah. least um, prestigious WrestleMania match of all time, or it was basically like a TV squash match. Mm-hmm. Where he has uh, Damien draped around him, and then he starts uh, frothing at the mouth um, <laughs> at the end, kind of a disturbing 
scene, if we all remember that. But George Wells was uh, actually, he uh, played football in the CFL for eight years. I did do research, a little bit of research, because I was curious. And, uh, yeah, in the offseason, he wrestled. Uh, he was an all-star in the CFL, so, yeah. Was he currently playing football in 1979? I, I believe he was right at the tail end, I think. Um, I think his career in the CFL was sort of like 1972 to 1980, around there. Oh. Uh, yeah. And then, lastly, we have Hector Guerrero, of the famous Guerrero wrestling family um i'll admit outside of eddie and and chavo jr of course my you know knowledge of the guerrero family is is pretty limited and i don't know how much i've ever seen of hector before but he's very young in this match. that was senior supposed to be really good i think yes i've seen a bit of him because him and piper in la had a feud and there's a few matches of theirs on youtube kicking around uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think Chavo uh, Sr. is considered sort of the, the biggest um, or the best performer of, of the early Guerreros. Right. And so anyway, it's a eight-man tag. It's a elimination rules. And um, so this is a, a pretty big segment coming up here. And uh, Martin, I'll let you take it away with your thoughts. Yeah, so... Uh here they begin with uh their t- they have the belts uh donis and star and i've never seen ron star before never even heard of this guy and that's unusual usually i've at least heard of everybody whether i've seen him before or not never even heard of this guy and i looked at him and i'm like wow this guy looks like he sucks and that's i've actually fun. turned out I've, I've actually turned the corner on him i think he's actually pretty good yeah in some later matches and i think he was pretty good in this match and uh, so Piper plays the bagpipes, and we got Rose clapping uh, along with the bagpipes, which is, you know, it was good to, yeah. to rile the crowd. Definitely got some extra heat for that. Um, other than that, you know, it's typical babyface shine. Uh, Piper was bumping around for everybody. Uh, Rose took some bumps. Uh, my favorite part was the revolving door thing which I had never really seen before, but it makes total sense to just have the baby face trapped in the corner and just have the, the heels just revolve around him. I thought they that was probably the cooler, one of the cooler spots. Then I liked how they played in the De Beers. Oh, sorry, his name's not De Beers. What, what's his last name again? Wiskowski. Wiskowski. I can't spell it, so I always have De Beers <laughs> down as the note. Yeah. Uh, so Wiskowski saved with a headbutt, headbutt on the first fall, which leads to Rose pinning Wells. And then, oh, in the second fall, that didn't happen. But on the third fall, what happened was uh, Wiskowski tried to do it again, but this time he hits Brooks. Yeah. So I liked how that sort of uh, transitioned in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. On the second fall, we do the revolving door again on Adonis. I like that. Oh, I missed something. I know there was one other good thing that was really cool. Where was it? Oh, Rose and Ron Starr on the amateur wrestling crawling thing. That was an excellent moment of struggle. Yeah. Like Starr's trying to get away and, uh, uh, to get to his corner, and Rose is trying to hog tie him. That was really well done. And, you, and uh, one thing that I've always thought about heels, and Ric Flair echoes these comments on the Steve Austin show, was a heel should always be unselfish. And Buddy Rose is definitely not afraid of showing ass, which is why he's definitely really, really good. Oh, yeah. And uh, But, yeah, it was uh, solid work. I thought it was pretty lighthearted. This is the type of match that I feel like is a lost art. Like, I feel like people nowadays on the indie scene – 
whenever they try to do a lighthearted match, it just breaks out into this weird, like, shattering the fourth wall comedy match. But you don't have to go so overboard in comedy. Like, this was a great way to be lighthearted about it with heels bumping all around. Mm-hmm. Still have heat segments, and, you know, it's an enjoyable popcorn match. It's a good primer for Portland wrestling. Like, I wasn't blown away. I didn't think, like, wow, greatest match of all time. Oh, it definitely made me more intrigued to watch more Portland wrestling, and especially with the hot angle at the end. So basically what happens is uh, Wiskowski goes to save again using a headbutt, and the babyfaces have been smartened up to it. They're like, ah, oh, Wiskowski did this before, which is how they pinned Wells. And, he was like, and so they, uh, they lifted up. He hit Tim Brooks. And then uh, so bro, then there's a big brouhaha about whether or not he did it on purpose. And then Brooks, who, because he's a freaking insane psychopath from, <laughs> from Pentonville, just freaking punches him. And next thing you know, Rose throws Piper over. And then here comes uh, proto-demolition decapitation on Brooks. <laughs> and then Rose and Wiskowski up in the stands talking about how they broke his neck and how they're the best and there's too many chiefs in the tribe or too many cooks in the kitchen and that they were the leaders all along and they, they never should have, you know, joined up with these jabronis. The paraphrase. <laughs> James? I like how on that on that promo at the end they say uh, Rose and Wiskowski, they say, well, we can get along with anyone except for, and then they listed off a bunch of names of people that they had problems with, yeah. you know, so basically oh, yeah, the whole, right. the whole yeah. Portland roster, you know, <laughs> they, they get along with everyone except for the yeah. other 20 guys in the territory. Uh, yeah, I think this was a lot of fun, and this was my first ever exposure to Portland. Uh, I'd never seen anything beyond, like, this, and that yeah. was, like, on Wednesday, you know, and uh, yeah. it was a lot of fun, and I've got here that, uh, you know, George Wells looks better than I've ever seen him before, and this oh, is the second match second I've seen match. him in. <laughs> yeah. I think that's true for most And people. then uh, I would have liked – I was uh, kind of excited to see what Hector Guerrero could do, and he wasn't really in long enough to do anything, but he looked all right. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was wondering if uh, Wiskowski was channeling his – Colonel De Beers' future persona because the two the minorities got eliminated first. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh yeah, you know, and, uh, and I thought uh, you know with Wiskowski looked pretty good too. I was never the least bit impressed with you know Colonel De Beers, but I thought he looked good. He bumped good for everybody. Yeah, and, he was uh, big on the exaggerated bumping off the the punch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fall over. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ron Starr, that's a that's somebody that I've only heard his name before. I don't think I've ever seen him, but you know, he looked better than I would have imagined. And, he looked uh, better than what he actually like looks like. <laughs> yeah. I know yeah, he looked like uh, John Holmes. Kind yeah. of you know, yeah. <laughs> with the perm and the mustache. <laughs> oh, that's what I wanted to bring up. Doesn't <laughs> Buddy Rose look exactly like Louis Anderson? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> he does. Teeth, too, even down to, like, the teeth. Same. Yeah, it was, like, really creepy. I'm like, who does he look like? Who does he look like? And then yeah, I, find... <laughs> I know. It, it is, like, a lost at birth, separated at birth sort of thing with those two. Yeah. yeah. Um, Wiskowski's actually, like, I would consider him, like, a really underrated promo guy, for sure, first and foremost. Because um, yeah. I think even as De Beers, he's, he's, I mean, his matches are often 
thought of as De Beers as being pretty crummy, but his promo work was always considered like top notch. Um, and he's, it, not that it matters, but wasn't he like a super nice guy in real life? Uh, possibly. I can't say I, I know too much about him. I think yeah, I, I have that if he was a super nice guy or not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, he's someone that's definitely, uh, definitely underrated. Um, and as we'll see, he's uh, he's really good in, in, in this footage. Um, yeah, this was, you know, I, I included this mostly because it's the start of the, the Rose Piper feud with uh, the big angle at the end. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a fun match um, with yeah, a bunch of guys that you've either hardly ever seen before or never seen before. And I think it's good to start with like an eight-man tag because you kind of get a, a flavor for everybody. That's true. Oh, yeah. 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 This was a perfect start. Uh, this is a great introduction to Portland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get yeah. Looks at a bunch of different guys, and um, yeah, like for the the overall story, this of course yeah starts the basically the biggest feud in in Portland history. Um, another thing uh, in Portland that's unique to Portland is the the twenty count on the uh, on the outside instead of a ten count. Oh yeah. Uh, which was the end of the, that's how the match ended. Oh, and another thing, the, the, the spot where they go for the interviews is known as the Crow's Nest um, in Portland. Yeah, quite famous after the matches, they go up, up the stairs and it's this little perch area where they're looking down on the ring. And um, yeah, so that was the end. They were, Rose and Wiskowski were counted out uh, uh, from the 20 count. And I think um, Mexico uses 20 counts and I think J- Japan mostly does too. I do believe, yeah, Japan uses 20 count. Yeah, and I think St. Louis, the old St. Louis territory used the 20 count too. I like it better because I always, one of my sort of pet peeves in wrestling is the the 10 count that has to be stretched to like ridic- ridiculous length <laughs> yeah. by the referee or he just stops counting or like, I, and I hate it when the ref, uh, wrestlers outside don't even make an attempt to like break up the count, you know, it's just a little thing. Uh, yeah, it's always annoyed me, and I think twenty is is better. You know, that gives you more time to screw around on the outside without having to to um, stretch the 20, ten count. Yeah, so, always yeah. be aware of the count, which I don't think people are always aware of the count. Oh no, that's another lost art. Like you used to yeah. always see that, always breaking up the count, rolling in, rolling out. Now it's yeah. it, ever since the Attitude Era, that's just like no one cares. And well, I mean, it's also kind of weird too. I don't know the. Sometimes they follow those rules, and then sometimes, you know, all of a sudden the count doesn't get right. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> true. Totally inconsistent. Yeah. Wasn't uh, Andre and Hogan at WrestleMania three? Weren't they outside the ring for like <laughs> three minutes, like a full quarter yeah. of the match, and there was yeah. never a count? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it took them forever to flip them over from the pile drive. <laughs> oh, we're gonna do this spot, goddammit. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I know. Yeah, well that matches. God, I remember showing that to some. A few years ago, I was hanging out with some people that uh, I'd invite them over to my place, and we'd watch wrestling all night long. And they weren't wrestling fans, really. Some of them had, like, uh, you know, a bit of fandom. But we watched that one night um, just because I think someone had was, like, interested. Oh, Hogan Andre from, you know, they'd heard of it. And so I was like, well, okay, we'll put it on. It's a good spectacle. It's, and then halfway through, you know, the match, everyone was just shitting on it. It was totally like, you know, this is horrible, and there's so many bad spots. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, that was a, a bit of a digression. But uh, yeah, this is um, this was a good good start. Um, the angle at the end was really well done. You know, Brooks gets stretchered out of the ring. Um, they really put over. 
I like it how they put over Rose and Wiskowski as being like so bad that they're even feuding with other heels. You know, they're, yeah. they're, you, nobody likes these guys or they don't like anybody like, uh, you know, like Martin said. Um, yeah. So because at this time, you know, and for a while after Piper remains a heel, basically, um, other than feuding with Rose. Because I don't know if you guys watched any of the other footage. I watched like little bits and pieces, and there's a thing later where Piper's basically feuding with, well, he's feuding with Ron Starr, and he's involved in this thing with uh, a wrestler, a woman named Vicky Williams. Did you guys? Oh, I heard her name, but I had no idea what he was talking about. Well, no, there was I didn't this. See that. Okay, well, the premise was there was a big battle royal coming up where women were going to be allowed to be in it with the men. Yeah, That's I didn't know about that. I was like, and what, Vicky what the hell Williams, is that? Yeah, and Vicky Williams is one of them, and Ripe Piper's playing up the whole male chauvinist, you know, women should be in the, the kitchen, you know, doing the dishes and all that sort of stuff, and she slaps him at one time in a in an interview segment, and all that happened after this match, so Piper still remains basically a heel, other than uh, the, the fact that he's feuding with Rose for a few That's months. That's pretty high-tech booking for uh, 1979 right there. Yeah, yeah, tweener, yeah, tweeners yeah. and stuff. Well, no, that's, uh, that's, yeah. No, I'm sorry. Uh, now Tim Brooks, he was gone for a while, right? I mean, like yeah. working this injury angle, so yeah, yeah. probably a uh, yeah, 90 day jail sentence he had to take. Care <laughs> yeah, <of>. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, he, uh, yeah, had to fulfill the rest of his sentence. Yeah, I think he was out for maybe a month. He probably, in in reality, went to another territory or something like that. Or oh yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, he was he was gone for a while. So yeah, the next on the docket here is a couple matches uh, between Buddy Rose and Adrian Adonis that take place, I want to say about four or five months after uh, the match we just went over. And James, you're a huge Adrian Adonis fan. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah um, that was maybe the main reason I've included these matches here. I mean, I was very intrigued to see Adonis work as a babyface. Well, he's like the number one babyface in the promotion. Yeah, at this point, yeah. Yeah, he is. Um, and very over, very and very good in his role, too. Um, so the first match is, yeah, there's, this, there's two matches. And uh, I'll go back to you, Martin, um, to discuss the first of the two between Buddy Rose and Adrian Adonis. Yeah, so uh, the first one, oh, so Rose has a new buddy, uh, Ed Wiskowski. I don't know where he exactly went, but he's now hanging out with Rip Rogers, <laughs> who's uh, famous for um, his WCW, like, Saturday night, five-minute, seven-minute, like, match run with bunch of people that people generally like rip rogers matches from that time and uh so basically we start off with a fired up adrian adonis he's all knuckled up he kind of reminds me of william regal with the haircut and the stance and uh so rose is, is pretty timid a lot of stalling going on and then uh once adonis gets a hold of him it's uh the usual stuff you know press slams and strikes and stuff to make rose you know, you know, have Rose bump around for him. Uh, the you see a fan. He's got like a bandana on with some long hair, and he's flipping off Buddy Rose. And then just behind him, you have an old lady yelling at him. Nothing unites 
<laughs> Nothing cuts across demographics like Buddy Rotate. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so then what ends up happening, though, is uh, Rose ends up uh, getting, gaining the advantage because Adonis crashes and burns. And then excellent psychology throughout the rest of the matches. Rose is working the uh, abdomen of Adrian Adonis and wins yeah. with a uh, gut buster double stomp there. So Rose now feeling pretty cocky, does a little strut and stroll around the ring. And, uh, you know, Adrian Adonis is on the outside, and pretty much now uh, Rose is working, you know, working the claw. Do you believe the claw is around? Yes, the claw yeah. is in the second fall. We find out that there's a consulting referee at ringside. She's about 100 years old. <laughs> and, uh, named Grandma. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, so that's a, a, one of the first instances where I actually looked at the front row. And I realized that everyone's like ancient, but like <laughs> really into it usually. Oh, totally. And then uh, from there, uh, Adonis actually is able to regain the advantage, and uh, he works over the knee, top elbow, uh, top rope elbow drop off the knee. He uh, he had a top rope move off in the last match, so pretty agile at this point in his career. Spinning toe hold, which was his finisher in Portland, gains Adonis the second victory. Oh, did we mention that all these Portland matches are two out of three falls? Because all Portland matches are two out of three. Falls. Uh, well, actually, just the main events, but that's all we're oh, basically really? watching. Really? Didn't know that. Oh, yeah, the undercard matches were just one fall, but yeah, uh, oh. two out of three falls for the main events. With okay, so five okay. minute breaks in between falls too. So we're all knotted up. It's one one. Adonis looks to go back to the uh, spinning toe hold, but uh, Rose uses an eye rake. Uh, Ro- Billy Robinson. I don't think he's name-dropped in this match, but he's name-dropped in other matches for yeah. using the backbreaker, uh, for Rose-style backbreaker. So I guess Billy Robinson had a tenure in Portland. But unfortunately for Buddy Rose, he hits it on his heart knee. So he's, he's got a sell, and he's, he's writhing in pain. And uh, now we're gouging at the eyes. We have Adonis gouging at the eye. He's really working the eye. I mean, like, this isn't just like an eye poke. Like, he literally looks like he's going to claw Buddy Rose's eye out. <laughs> then you have Rip Rogers come in off the top. Adonis. Uh, now Rose is clawing at Adonis's eye. An eye for an eye, literally. Then a dumbass fan throws a fucking pen in the ring. I don't know if it's a work or a shoot. And Rose just grabs the pen and starts jabbing it in his eye. We, and then he goes up to the nest. And he's like, look there, you dumbass fan. You try to hurt me by throwing a pen at me. Well, I used that pen and I almost scoped out your favorite wrestler's eye, you moron. So there you go. That was the end of that match. I like that angle at the end. Yeah, yeah. It was if it was, I don't know, maybe it was a shoot. Maybe he was just working with what was thrown at him. I thought it was really weird that a guy like just chucked a pen at him. I think it was. I think it was a work. Um, I think it was too. But yeah, I think it was a work because it it played into the finish, of course, and then um, and then was mentioned later in the in the interview. But it was a pretty clever way to end the match. Yeah, damn, I was thinking. It was, I was, it was thinking really that was... a violent way too. I mean, I hate eye things like whenever. There are eye, you know, portions of movies where people like get needles or anything. Uh, yeah. It always freaks me out. So eye gouging was pretty visceral for me. Yeah, James, your thought? Well, it was, man, it was really weird seeing Adrian Adonis as a face. I'd never seen that before, but uh, I bought it, and I wasn't sure what I was going to think of this. But um, you know, it's a nice match between two guys that would, you know, just like five years later would be like two hundred pounds heavier. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, 
but they're both really good here. Um, uh, I didn't care for the when uh, Buddy went to slam Adonis and, and Adonis blocked the body slam. Uh, I didn't really buy that because, you know, they're both about the same size. Right. But I don't know why that bothered me, but I made a note about it. Okay. And then uh, when Adonis misses a big splash towards the end of the first fall, his selling was just fantastic. Oh, yeah. I mean, it yeah. <laughs> it was like he's flopping around like a fish. And yeah. <laughs> he always adds like an extra layer to his selling that most people don't. Like he not only flops over, but then he does the, the fish out of water routine. And, uh, and, and Buddy got a pin off of that. And then uh, well, I think he – no, he did a gut buster, and then he got the pin. But right. then he got the second fall with – with the old lady getting pissed off enough to get out of her chair and walk all the way to ringside and point at Buddy and tell him not to pull the hair. And then she went back and sat down. And uh, that's a hell of a front row in Portland. I mean, she might have been the youngest one on that front row. She, the uh, fact that she could get up probably says that she was the youngest yeah, one. Yeah, there's a guy. He's got to be 90, and he's there every show. And yeah. his mouth is permanently open. Uh, <laughs> I don't, in the next step, the next match, it's just like he looks like he's watching something that he really shouldn't be watching. I don't know, like hot lesbians making out or something. And he's just like, Jesus hates me. I'm going to hell for watching this. He has that like look on his face. Like, he's just transfixed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it totally reminds me of going to shows in Calgary when I was younger. You would have those kind of, you know, the old people that for them it was totally real. Uh, there was this one old guy that would always be there who would always scream, he's got the hair, ref, hair, he's got the hair, he's got brass knuckles, always just, <laughs> and at times he would have to be subdued by, you know, the security guards. Oh, my God. Out of <laughs> but it's totally classic, totally just like those guys. I was reminded, on, and the second fall, I was reminded of some of this WWF stuff we're watching where there seemed to be no rules, because... Uh, <laughs> they do a chase outside the ring, and Adonis yeah, does yeah, a sunset yeah. flip. Oh, and yeah, the, yeah. The yeah. ref climbs out and counts the, the tra- yeah, counts yeah, yeah. Tip. Falls kind of anywhere match, I guess. And then yeah. the, I love the uh, uh, the elbow drop on Buddy's knee from Adonis from the top rope. Awesome. And then uh, into a spinning toe hold for the submission. Uh, and then the inside backbreaker by Rose in the third fall where – he hits it and then, you know, sells his injured knee. Just beautiful. Uh, just fantastic. And then the fan with the, throws the pin in the ring. And it, I thought it was, I thought it was just improv. I was thinking, man, this is, you know, great improv by Buddy to grab this pin. And then they, but they talked about it enough to where, you know, I wondered about it because, you know, and it was a nice way for Buddy to say, yeah, anytime you throw anything into the ring, I'll use it to hurt your favorite yeah, wrestlers. Yeah. You know, it's a nice way to tell fans don't do it. And then the announcer probably showed more emotion than at any point in any of the footage we watched when he said, oh, some idiot threw a yeah. You yeah. don't hear that yeah. often. <laughs> you know, from announcers calling the fans idiots. But yeah. uh, anyway, this was a good match. Uh, yeah, I had no idea what to expect going in, but I, you know, I thought it was really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Adonis's uh, selling was was so good in this. <laughs> when he's in the the claw hold, just his face, his expressions there were awesome. Selling it like death, 
Um, yeah, they made the claw hold work pretty good in this match. Claw hold's uh, not the easiest hold to get over. No. no, no, it's all about the cell. You have to, I mean, because yeah. it looks ridiculous, right? It's, it looks like he's giving him a tummy massage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that, I mean, Adrian made it look like it was, you know, the greatest hold ever, the most painful hold ever. Um, the referee for these matches, by the way, is Sandy Barr, who I, I think was like the only referee in the whole promotion. I, I don't yeah, know. I gotta say something about Sandy Barr. So I have a perfect sponsor for you guys at Titans of Wrestling. <laughs> yeah. Sandy Barr Flea Market. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I written down. Uh, yeah, it's mentioned in almost every match. Oh yeah, my yeah. God, it got put over more than half the wrestlers. They <laughs> did. <laughs> I, yeah. I want to go to one of these flea markets now. I want to know what's there besides wrestling tickets. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I've been to flea markets over the years. And Vancouver has a, a, a huge flea market um, where the last time I went, there was actually one guy selling old wrestling magazines from, like, the <sighs> early 80s. And I didn't buy. He had two. Um, and I was thinking, uh, almost, and I didn't. I should have, probably. The covers were kind of boring. It was, like, Ernie Ladd and somebody... I wanted one with like a bloody dusty roads or something like that, something that jumped out at me. But yeah, um, if you run across those again, uh, uh, let me know. I'll make it worth your while. Yeah, yeah. Do you collect old uh, mags? Yeah, everything I can get my hands on. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah. yeah, I've been thinking about eventually doing that for the '70s mags for sure. Yes. Yeah, because yeah, those the covers are just so awesome. But yeah, no, I, I totally. I don't know what I was thinking, but. I'm often, uh, I can be pretty thrifty sometimes. Oh, yeah. Thrifty enough to be too cheap at a flea market, so that's pretty embarrassing. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, um, Sandy Bar, yeah, uh, yeah, the flea markets uh, every um, Saturday, was it? Sunday? I think Sunday. Every Sunday. Yeah, every Sunday. Yeah, I think so. Um, and if he was um, the father of Art Bar, who um, later on became a, a wrestler, um, he Love was machine, right? machine no, yeah, Beetlejuice, um, tragically died, you know, way too young. Him and uh, Eddie Guerrero were famous uh, Los Gringos Locos yep. uh, in the AAA promotion. So that was uh, Sandy's kid. And also Jesse Barr, um, Jimmy Jack Funk. Um, I didn't make any of these connections. Yeah, well, I just know this from, you know, uh, reading too much about uh, certain things in wrestling so history. Jesse Barr was Art Barr's brother? Yes. That's a hell of an age difference, isn't it? Yeah. I'm pretty sure they're brothers. I'm huh. pretty sure. Well, let's see. Uh, I'm, not, Jimmy, I'm not questioning it. I think Jimmy Jack Funk, when he was in the WWF, was really young. Like, he oh, was, really? Yeah, I think he was early, very early 20s. But I could be wrong. But I know for sure um, Art Bar is definitely Sandy's uh, son. Yeah. And, yeah, so, and his ring attire, uh, another Thing about Sandy Barr is so casual in this match where he's just <laughs> wearing like a striped uh, shirt. It's not even like a ref, uh, just like his clothes, basically his street clothes. <laughs> was he in? Was that the Bumblebee shirt he was wearing? Like, I think so. Very, yeah, very seventies um, look, uh, bright colors. Yeah. <laughs> Before uh, Striper ripped him off in the eighties. <laughs> he got a hell of a deal on that shirt at the flea market. <laughs> I wonder if he's still running it. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's still alive. Maybe he does. So I got to make a trip to Portland and I'll, I'll track down Sandy Bar's flea market. If yes. he's still there, I will go to Portland just for Sandy Bar's <laughs> flea market. I have no desire to go to Portland otherwise. Oh, 
great. So the next match um, is um, a rematch. Oh, and I should mention Rip Rogers, um, of course, is, is great on YouTube. He's, he's uh, posts comments for a ton of matches. I don't know if you guys have seen this. Um, he's always commenting on matches on, on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he's a huge, like, he's one of the guys that puts over Buddy as being one of the greats. And, um, yeah, I think Rip would be a great uh, guest potentially for a podcast. Um, he's definitely, uh, he's out in cyberspace quite heavily, that's for sure. He's, oh, uh, yeah, he blows up my Twitter feed every once in a while. With, like, oh, really? <laughs> tons of posts, like, stream, like stream of consciousness uh, posts. Sometimes they, like, make sense, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you're like, I don't know. That was kind of, it's kind of mean towards women. And then like other times I got a point about wrestling though. So I'm keeping him on. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. No, he's, and he was a very, uh, another underrated guy that I don't, can't say I know too much about. Um, he wrestled in Stampede uh, too in the eighties later on. Uh, I've seen his Alabama work against Adrian Street, I believe. Nice. Yeah, I think it was in Alabama. And it's amazing that in Alabama in the 80s, Adrian Street got over as a babyface. Yeah. That was the most incredible thing to me. That, that, I know. Adrian Street's a guy I definitely want to explore more of, if possible. Um, I've seen one match of his in England in the early 70s against Jim Brakes that is, is fantastic. Um, actually, World of Sport, English uh, World of Sport is something I want to potentially look at for a podcast someday. Have you guys seen any of that before? I've not delved into that yet. Was he working the gimmick? Uh, yep, he was working the gimmick. Um, he was the baby face in that, because Jim Brakes is uh, like one of the biggest heels in, in English wrestling history. But it's a fantastic match. And um, England is a totally different beast when it comes to wrestling with uh, like the round system right. and uh, public warnings and stuff. It's really cool, though. Like There's a lot on YouTube. There's a ton of it out there um just to be gobbled up anyway um so the next match is the rematch between rose and adonis for this one though um rogers rip rogers and steve pardee who we're seeing for the first time um mid-level baby face in portland at this time i don't know too much about him um anyway he's chained to rip rogers on the outside which uh, leads to quite a few amusing moments uh during the course of this match and i'll also mention here that um dono and the promoter owner of the territory is also the the ring announcer for all the matches and he to put it mildly is is kind of uh befuddled often and <laughs> <laughs> not the smoothest delivery um here i i can't remember i i noted it here i can't remember if he he mumbled or or Mara, said something in a confusing manner during this uh, introduction. But there's one match later in the 80s that I've seen, uh, 1982. It's Buddy Rose against uh, Dr. D. David Schultz. And he introduces Dr. D. as Dr. J. But anyway, yeah, he, he comes off as, you know, and he wasn't trained to do this. He was just doing it so he didn't have to pay anyone to do it for yeah. him. <laughs> was this the match where he announced uh, that this would be the last live show? Right, and, yes. Right, this is and that one, yep. Some guy yells, well, that stinks, Owen. And he <laughs> was, like, a little bit befuddled <laughs> with that comment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I didn't hear the fan, but yeah, this was the, yes, I have it on the note. This was the last live show. Um, and then the next week would be the first taped one. So yeah, a little bit of uh, history here. Um, so yeah, the rematch, Rose Adonis, uh, Martin, your thoughts? Um, I thought this was probably the most, I would say this was the most disappointing match of the set of what we watched. I thought the best parts, I'll start with the positives. The best parts was everything involved to Rip Rogers being chained to Steve Party. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they definitely put over the gimmick really early, how it was going to affect the match. And then they have the spots where Rose, like somehow always, he got lifted over the top rope once. And then the other time he got like head butted out the bottom. And both times he just landed on Rogers, breaking Rogers chair. So, <laughs> That was, I thought that was probably some of the best stuff. Uh, they worked the full Nelson early. It was, uh, you know, pretty decent. Basically just, uh, you know, Adonis uh, broke out of it, and then Rose would, you know, he, then Adonis put it on Rose, so kind of the idea is, you know, tit for tat. And then um, from there, Rose actually starts working the leg, which I liked a lot. There was good stuff there. My fi- I'm like a big mark for drop toe holds. I, I don't know why. I always think drop toe holds look really sweet, and Buddy Rose had a wicked drop toe, like one of the best drop. Nick Bockwinkle has a really good drop toe hold, and Mike Rotunda, who gets a lot of shit, but <laughs> the dude has a friggin' sweet drop toe hold. So <laughs> he's not that bad for. Uh, you know, at least he has the drop toe hold. Uh, the old man's face is makes a uh, big appearance here. Yeah. There's a lot of uh you get to see him just transfixed, mouth agape, yeah. looking like uh he's seen something crazy going on. It was just a wrestling match. <laughs> and um Adonis ends up rolling an ab stretch into a pin, which is a pretty sweet like seventies, eighties move that I think people should steal. Like whenever I watch these matches, I'm I always think, Oh man, that's a spot someone should steal or that's a move someone should steal. That's one of them. Uh, then they do the Rogers freed between falls type stuff. And then he's hooked to the, to the, uh, post and he, he jerks himself back and then they pull him into the, to the post and then they double knock and knockers. So all this stuff with Rogers is really fun. Then the problem is of course the interminable, interminable, uh, front face lock that never seems like it's going to end. Yeah. That's where I kind of like lose them. I, I thought the first fall was pretty good. You know, it was a good primer. I wanted them. They were so violent in the last match that it was like, okay, fine. The first fall is not going to be violent. Like, let's get violent in the second and third fall. But I guess they were saving that for the loser leaves town match, which I understand. You know, this is TV. This is for free. You're going to make your big money on Tuesday because that's when they held all their their big house shows. So I understood that. But that front face lock was pretty boring. And uh, I don't even remember how it really ended. Adonis, I have Adonis hit an atomic drop. Rose does some begging off, and then, oh, right, this is the big deal, is Adonis wins two in a row, which is similar to, you know, how wrestling booking always is, is uh, whoever wins the match, usually they'll put someone over really big in a match that doesn't matter, like 2 nothing. They really put over Adonis bought a house here, yeah, exactly. settled down in the Pacific <laughs> yeah. Northwest, right before the loser leaves town match on yeah. Tuesday. So this is pretty classic pro wrestling. Oh, that was totally carny, like saying, well, the fans yeah. would be thinking, he can lose, he has a house here, so he's going to win, we got to go see this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. Well, and just to bring up a current wrestling reference, like right now what's going on is the big show is apparently broke. 
and his strip mall went belly up. But like if they had like brought this up like a couple months prior, it would have uh, made more sense than all of a sudden hot shot and that big show is broke. Yeah, that's true. Whenever they bring up a wrestler, I remember a few years ago, it was, uh, wasn't it Shawn Michaels who was broke? Right, he was broke too. Yeah, that didn't work out too well. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the carny touch of, of Adonis cutting the promo about just settling down in Portland, I loved that. Because I, I knew this was his last match. He does. You know, not to spoil it for anyone. Adonis on Tuesday lost the the loser leaves town to Buddy. So this was no. it. Yeah. You mean you mean he didn't stay in Portland for his entire career? No, he had to quickly sell that house. I don't know. Oh my god. Probably was a big pain in the ass for Adrian to have to <laughs> his wife flip was that house. So they were out on the streets and <laughs> Oh yeah, God. But no, this was the end of Adrian in, in Portland. I, I don't know if he ever came back actually. Um he went on from here I think to the AWA. And actually, his, his days as a babyface after this are very limited, if if any at all, that I know of. Yeah, I'm not aware of any other time where he was a babyface. Yeah. I know before this, he was in L.A., he was a babyface. But yeah. Anyway, uh, James, anything else to add about this one? Well, uh, first, yeah, I, I really like Rip Rogers. Uh, he's like one of those special kind of strange guys like yeah. in the Lanny Poffo category. Uh, <laughs> yeah, remind me of Lanny Poffo. That's really good. Yeah, I wonder if he's as flexible as Lanny. We'll have to ask him. I heard Rip Rogers is knocking around boards these days. But yeah. uh, anyway, and, and, and I have to mention because it's one of, my, one of my favorite stories that in Mick Foley's book, um, Barry Windham uh, used the restroom and dropped his keys in the toilet. And uh, there was a bunch of wrestlers just standing around wondering how they were going to get the keys out. And uh, Rip Rogers storms in there, rolls his sleeve up, and just dives <laughs> right in and grabs him. <laughs> I like Rip Rogers' style. I mean, that's all I would have done. <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't believe all these wrestlers have their dicks in their hands. And they can't figure out. Just grab the keys. I don't know. <laughs> I'm with Rip on that one. You just wash your hands afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I could do that. Probably not, but I'd like to see somebody else do it. <laughs> but, I don't know. I'm with Rip. <laughs> and then yeah, uh, Rip, Rip Rogers is also the cheapest man in wrestling. He he likes to eat uh, ketchup soup, you know, warm water with a packet of ketchup. <laughs> Holy Wait, did Mick Foley say he was the cheapest guy in wrestling? Yeah. That's yeah. Really yeah. yeah, that's my oh, opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's... As far as the match play. goes, uh, I was a little disappointed uh, with with the with uh, Rogers and Pardee chained each other. I was expecting and hoping for a lot more ridiculous slapstick, uh, but I did like when when Buddy wanted to consult with Rogers, uh, Pardee would yank him away as soon as they started to talk to each other, and uh, I would have liked to seen Rogers do a crazy bump every time that happened, but. Uh, I wasn't real high on this match either. Uh, the first fall was a lot better than the second. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. then uh, on the second fall, I kind of zoned out and started yeah. watching the inside crowd and stuff like that. And the, the security guard looked like he was pregnant with quads. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he had, he had, people have a six pack and he had like a keg. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, just way too much stalling. Uh, I didn't like the, you know, Buddy Rose hit a nice drop kick to Adrian Adonis's head, and Adonis like didn't sell it. 
he didn't go down. Weird. Uh, and I thought, you know, these two guys, I, 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 I thought he would have bumped huge off of that because he bumps huge on everything else. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I love, I love Buddy's bumps off of. This isn't the first. Uh, well, it happens multiple times in different matches, but uh, the way Rose bumps from an atomic drop is just a thing of beauty. Uh, <laughs> and then the the finish of the second match was looked like it was screwed up. Or just not executed very well, but with the flying body press off the top, that was just real sloppy and kind of oh, a down. Well, Steve Party was shaking the ropes. Shake the ropes. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Then the other thing is, some of these people aren't terribly athletic. I don't mean that, to be like, <laughs> That's true. but like you'll, man. So especially with Stacey X. So I, I, I just <laughs> in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah, no, the first match between the two is the better one. This, the second fall, yeah, killed it with the the front face lock that was way yeah. too long, and they weren't working it in any, you know, uh, interesting fashion. Um, but yeah, I, I thought since there was two back to back Adrian and Buddy matches on the set or in the footage, we should uh, check them out. And you know, that's the nature of this stuff and the nature of like the set, the WWF stuff we're watching where. You'll have uh, some really great matches, and then you'll have a lot of uh, mediocre matches and some outright stinkers. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a you know uh, you don't want to watch just like the greatest hits, and no, uh, hell no. and it, I mean it, it was for what they were trying to do with the uh, loser leaves town match. This set it up, you know, very well with Adrian winning both falls and 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 um, going over strong leading into that. So. From a booking standpoint, it was it was very well done. But yeah, I think that was kind of the point. You don't want to give away too much on free TV. Yeah, it's too bad. That's another thing about lost footage and all that is that, as far as I know, the the Tuesday shows were never filmed. So, really, what we're getting, I mean, it's amazing what they did put on TV. Uh, you can only imagine what they had going at the house shows, right? Um, just the non televised shows. But yeah, as far as I know, that they they were never televised or filmed. So yeah, we're we're just getting basically the B footage in a lot of ways <laughs> from Portland. So that that ends the uh, the Rose Adonis uh, feud. And now we're back to where we started, in a way, with uh, Roddy Piper and Buddy Rose. Uh, this is actually, I believe, about a month after the eight-man tag um, angle. And there was a few promos setting this up. Uh, we're going to watch two, or we're going over two uh, Roddy Piper and Buddy Rose matches. And a few promos set this up. My notes are, you know, Piper is so obviously a Canadian um, yeah, <laughs> with his accent, and the way he talks, like who ever thought he was from Scotland? Even when I was young, I was I was wondering why doesn't why doesn't he have a Scottish accent if he's from Glasgow, Scotland? <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't I didn't pick up on the the Canadian part really when I was young, but no, he's uh, he's obviously Canadian. I mean, from Saskatchewan, Winnipeg, totally um, that type of uh, Canadian accent for sure. Um, let's see, and then. 
They they always call the, uh, Don Owen Don Owens. Um, <laughs> Rose and Piper, I think too. Oh, they always do that. I don't know why. Um, well, I said. Well, you said Rose is from Minnesota, right? Yeah. That's he kind of has that Minnesotan lumberjack. They kind of sound similar. Yeah, yeah, Midwestern. Yeah, well, of course, yeah, Winnipeg is actually not far from uh, the Minnesota border. Yeah, when I, I, so, yeah, whenever I hear Minnesotans, they, they sound like Midwestern Canadians, to me at least, from yeah. Boston. Oh, totally, like Fargo. If you've seen the movie yeah. Fargo, that's how people in <laughs> Saskatchewan and Manitoba talk. And I was born in Saskatchewan, actually, and I lived in Winnipeg when I was very young. And... um yeah, so I probably sound like Roddy Piper in a lot of ways. You, you do sound like Roddy Piper and Buddy Rose in my ear right now. <laughs> oh, good. That <laughs> makes this whole show even better, that you actually have an authentic accent uh, mixed in here. <laughs> so anyway, I don't know. There wasn't much that I had about uh, written down about these promos prior to the match. Anything you guys want to add about this? I just thought, so going into this, I have to personally admit I'm not the world's biggest fan of uh, the Roddy Piper promo. I always thought it was a little overrated. I always thought, and I know I'm probably going to get heat for this, I always thought Ultimate Warrior, Savage, even like Raven were better at doing gibberish promos. Like I always <laughs> yeah. found them to be more entertaining. I always found Piper to be kind of lame, like he was doing dad jokes. But I think that's because of how old I am. And so he was like, when I was around, when I was watching, it was like he was wearing the icon t-shirt with the yeah, duck, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it was like, I think I probably just watched poor Piper, watching him as a serious baby face, saying he's gonna kick someone's ass. Wow, way better. Now I understand what people are talking about when they talk about Roddy Piper promo. Oh yeah, no, we we mentioned this before. I think the quality in Piper just drops off a cliff after he comes back from Hollywood. Basically, yeah, that was my big take-home message: is uh, Roddy Piper when he's not doing gibberish is is really good. Yeah, no, those Nitro promos in the '90s were horrible, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> my God! I was just like, why does Flair hang out with this guy? Flair's so much better. <laughs> I know. I don't know what happened to him because in the '80s and the late '70s, he was awesome. He was just definitely one of the best promo guys ever, in my opinion. And then by the 90s, you just, it was, the, the references, always the cheap pops with the uh, whatever town he was in, city he was in, talking about whatever uh, football team, baseball team, would always come up and just, yeah, promos that had basically no focus to them. just yeah. and, and really, I'm sure he just was going out there and just winging it, but. Wow. And way too many gay jokes. I watched him and Flair do a shooter interview. Flair's a huge Piper mark. You can tell, like, Flair thinks yeah. Piper's the funniest fucking thing that ever happened in this yeah. world. And yeah. I'm just listening to shooter interview. I'm like, Piper's not funny. Why are you laughing, Flair? <laughs> <laughs> Piper did some good stuff in recent years um, for WWE, at least when it was, it was like a serious thing, right? They would bring a Piper's pit to set up. Yeah. Um, I remember the one I remember most was, I think, during a, was it Orton and. Cena refuting, I think, and they did a Piper's Pit. Anyway, he did, Piper did a really, really good job of, I think it was that one where he said, you know, I never, I was never the world champion, you know, I never held that title. And it was a really good, serious Piper promo. But yeah, uh, anyway, uh, let, let's discuss uh, classic Piper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, James, anything about these promos? Uh, well, this is a little bit embarrassing because I, I, 
I see it's written here clearly that we need to watch it, but I kind of skipped over this match because I didn't think it was one we were supposed to watch. <laughs> right, right, right. I have I have nothing of value to add whatsoever. <laughs> okay, then. Yeah. Well, it was a little scrambled. I mean, the footage is all mixed up on, on between like thirteen discs, and yeah, it, uh, nothing's yep. in order. It jumps ahead from seventy nine back to seventy seven, then nineteen eighty, and it's all over the place. So anyway, okay, well, uh, Martin, you want to uh, dive into the the first of the two uh, Rose Piper matches? Yeah, I just want to say that, yeah, this is, this is my opinion, the, the better of the two. This is probably, I mean, I've seen the Piper-Bret Hart match, which is what I usually regard as, okay, that's Piper's best match, and nothing really ever comes close whenever I watch Piper. But this is something that, like, I could see Piper really, oh, actually, the dog collar match with Valentine, I actually consider it better. Okay, I thought of that. <laughs> Piper in violent matches is really good, and in the WWF, you don't have violent matches that often. So that was kind of the thing. I was like, wow, this Valentine match is, like, really good. If only Piper could be in this atmosphere more often. And so we get to see him in this pretty violent match with Buddy Rhodes. You can only imagine what the host show matches are like because uh, we get we get some blood on TV. This is before they get kicked off the air, too. Uh, so we start. it starts out pretty hot, like Don Owen's going to try to do the ring introductions, but he gets confused, as we point out, because they just start fighting, and so he kind of just mumbles his way through the ring introductions. Um, and then we go through, you know, a lot of working on the outside. Slam, oh, he slams him into the chair, but the, the fan got out of the way. The announcer was, like, amazed at the agility of this fan. Probably because every other fan was like, I'm not Canadian. <laughs> He's like, whoa, that fan moves so fast. <laughs> He's not 80. <eating>, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so then we move on. Oh, so then he's working on the cut. So thank God for the announcer here, because I would have never known he had a cut. But Rose is just going to town. Uh, you, you, I always think of um, Good Helmet Will, because he's a big fan of working cuts and biting on people's cuts. And yeah. Buddy Rose was doing it. He was all about that. And I definitely like the, the focus. I like how the announcer was putting over that Piper had not changed, making me think of Johnny Sorrow, another pro wrestling only guy. He would have loved this yeah. if he's not already seen it. And, uh, you know, Piper's, you know, got the Asiatic spike to the throat there. <laughs> and, uh, and I, you know, I think it's a, you know, I think that's, uh, really, I think this is an appropriate form of a baby face being an asshole. Sometimes that talking point gets a little, overused i think but this time i think the baby face should be an asshole to buddy rose because he is an asshole in, yeah. you know his character so we get uh piper's punches look so much better like in the late 90s it was just like holy shit this guy's <laughs> shit i'm like what is why is this guy on tv and uh so he like he had some really good strike combinations and he eventually uh, picks up the first fall with a, uh, stri a swinging neck breaker. So I really like the violence. It was really hot beginning. Uh, Rose does some stalling at first. I thought I actually thought they were going to do the count-out finish. They got me because I was thinking, oh, this is TV. They'll do the count-out finish. That way they can save everything for uh, the house shows. But no, Portland Wrestling delivers for the fans on TV. <laughs> so you get repeat. So Piper starts off hot again. And then, uh, oh, yeah, Buddy Rose's app breaks the middle turnbuckle. 
this is like the funniest thing in the world to me. <laughs> I was laughing so hard. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if that was a work or a shoot, but he uh, did some improv with that, too. He was like, uh, he's done, he was like, well, I'm just going to take down all the turnbuckles yeah. now. I'm going to choke them out with this. And so that was uh, really that was really good work by him. And uh, he hits the uh, Robinson backbreaker, which does get mentioned two times for three here. And so then we start off with uh, Rose blindsiding. We go into a bear hug sequence, Piper punches, brawl to the outside, and De Beers comes back. Oh, no, De Beers hasn't left yet because the Adonis stuff's afterwards. It's not De Beers, it's Laskowski. (laughs) Posts. Uh, Piper, while the referees are trying to like get Rose back into the ring, so the referees don't see anything. Sometimes Sammy Barr isn't good about this. He'll like look right at the heel while he's doing an interference spot, and then just look <laughs> away. At least this time, uh, oh, Dutch Savage was out there too. Who's a huge right. guy? Yeah, yeah, Dude, yeah. Monster. He was the outsider. Uh, so Rose claims that he kicks Piper in the head, and he should have won by countout. But Dutch Savage. You gotta get up pretty early in the morning to fool Dutch Savage. <laughs> and so he is. Thank you, Jesse Venture. I use that quote all the time. And, uh, he, uh, DQ's Buddy Rose and Buddy Rose hems and haws on the interview. And it was, I thought it was a really good spectacle. Really violent, uh, hot match. Worked, uh, pretty, they cut a really good pace. And, uh, yeah, so. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it was. It, it, it's it has you know a lot of unique aspects to it with the the rope breaking. I, who knows if that was legit or not? But yeah, you know the whole the whole ring almost falls apart at one point, or the, the ropes anyway. So that was unique. And the finish, yeah, I love how you know Savage and Bar don't believe you know that Rose won it fairly, right? You know, you never see that. No, you don't. You They're don't. Basically, like, it. well, we know you're an asshole. We know you cheat. So yeah, we're not going to trust you. So we're going to DQ you. So, yeah, and that's another thing I should mention about Portland is that the, the logic of their booking is, is considered, you know, you know, airtight almost uh, up there with like Mid-South wrestling uh, booking as far as having like logical finishes and and stuff like that. Little details like that. Who, where, who was I'm sorry. Who was doing the booking? That's a good question. Um, I know Dutch Savage. I was. Gonna, yeah. Yes. Savage was responsible for a lot of the booking. I know Buddy uh, did a lot of the booking. Um, oh. Meltzer mentions in his in the bio for Rose that eventually, by about 81, 82, there's a power struggle going on be- behind the scenes between Savage and Rose, basically over the, the booking direction of the territory, which eventually leads to uh, Savage having to leave um, the territory. Um, but at this point, I'm assuming Savage and maybe Buddy, um, I know Don Owen didn't, as far as I know, have anything to do with booking um, the angles or the matches. I'm pretty. I'm not surprised there at all. <laughs> no. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he'd be that much a very, you know, creative individual. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, kind of weird seeing a guy that's the owner of a territory and he acts like he has absolutely no clue what's going on. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> hey, he was smart enough to buy that arena. Yeah, he bought the yeah. arena and uh, got the TV, the TV spot. Um, that's where it ends for Don. I mean, he was a total businessman, you know, um, you know, he let the talent, uh, you know, draw the houses. Right. Uh, so, you know, got to credit him for that. Um, yeah, this was a pretty fun match, you know, a good, um, 
example of for this feud for sure. You know. The yeah, I thought it was yeah pretty. I actually have a question. Um, I always felt like they were building towards Buddy Rhodes versus Dutch Savage, but I know Dutch is pretty old at this point. I believe that was a feud that probably already happened. I think at this okay. point, Dutch, Dutch was like Bruno in the WWF right. at the same time, only wrestling very occasionally. Uh, Dutch had been the, the guy in, in Portland from, you know, like the early to mid 60s uh, to about 75 or 76, from what I gather. Um, first as a heel and then as a babyface. There's a good. Um, documentary on youtube i don't know if you guys have come across it or heard of it it was um filmed in 78 uh it was a P on pbs in portland and it's called savage and it's about um dutch's feud at the time with the iron sheik in portland um oh, wow but it's filmed in like a very uh interesting sort of like um uh, realistic manner where they talk to the fans to and and do like sort of quasi shoot sort of interviews it's it's really good it's on youtube i'll maybe uh throw up links to it um it's only like a half hour long if that so it's wait what year did the savage seek feud happen 78 which okay, is makes, for some right, reason right. in this footage uh 78 is is not represented at all hardly there's a right. bit of 78 just a little bit um but none of the iron chic because it leads to a cold liners glove match that in the in the that was the special that was Dutch Savage's specialty match, and uh, which I love I love that like that was his specialty match was the coal mine <laughs> match. That's strange. So, There's no coal in Portland, is there? Uh, well, it's it's uh, yeah, it's a definitely like a lumberjack, uh, tough guy sort of oh, area. Okay. I don't know about yeah actual coal mines, but it, it, it's fitting for the, the the territory I think. Anyway, so the documentary centers around like that feud and culminating with. Um, highlights of the, the coal miners glove match between him and Sheik and it's really cool and Dutch Savage comes off as like you know Clint Eastwood in in, in, a, in a spaghetti western as like you know, oh I could see that yeah oh, total yeah. badass man's man you know uh, rescuing the, the you know coming to the, the aid of the Pacific Northwest from from these scum villains that are that are coming in, so but on, I, I, other than that, there's I've looked, you know, I've tried to find Dutch Savage footage, and it's it's not easy to come by. Um, he may have feuded with um, Rose again after this, but I'm not sure. Um, I feel like they could do a pretty good gate with uh, a Rose Savage sort of. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll have to look more into that because, yeah, like I said, I, I, I'm far from an expert on this stuff, but and there's a lot of stuff that I'm interested in exploring more. But, yeah, this is um, a fun match, and it leads to, I believe, the very next week was a rematch, uh, and in this uh, was a lumberjack match, which I don't know if it was referred to as a lumberjack match. There was uh, one instance of the announcers saying it's popularly called the Lumberjack match, but they right. they more hyped that there would be six guards at ringside. Six guards around the ring was um, announced. Actually, after the previous match, uh, Sandy Barr announced that Don Owen wanted a, a match with the, the six guards around the ring to end it all, I guess, or, or whatever, yeah, to uh, prevent any outside interference, which uh, plagued the uh, previous match. So, and oh. then, yeah, we have a few, a bit, uh, we have a Rose Wiskowski promo building to the match. Um, I didn't really have much 
written down from that. Um, anyone want to add anything about Buddy's rematch promo? I don't think I actually really remember yeah. that. I know it I was, watched it last night. I watched it this morning. but I, I think it was really, yeah, quite short. Um, so, yeah, here we go. And this was a one-fall match, which was um, uh, deviating from the norm of the, the right. two out of three falls main events. So, basically, a lumberjack match with six guards around the ring. And uh, the six guards we have are Stan, the man Stasiak, for one. So, this is his... Kind of his first appearance. Uh, Ron Starr, uh, Matt Bourne, uh, the future Doink the Clown, original Doink the Clown, the future, um, whatchamacallit, too? In Big WC. Josh. Big Josh. Captain oh, yeah. I forgot <laughs> yes. And, and I've been looking for Big Josh matches. I can't find any like that seem to be decent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just remember him being, what, one of the six man. Uh, when they had the six-man tag belts. Oh, was, yeah, they had, like, a bunch of those, yeah, six-man tag. Like one of the more obscure titles that WCW ever had. He was part of a team. I, could, I don't even know who was. I feel like Tommy Rich was in the team. Him and Tommy Rich were buddies, I think. Yeah. I feel like well, Morton might have already turned heel, though, so I don't think it was Morton. No. I, I just remember my – I remember watching it, actually. It wasn't too long ago. It was um, a battle royal from one of the Clash of the Champions where um, – Big Josh comes down to the ring wearing a belt, and I, I was thinking, what which, what belt did he have? I don't remember him having a belt. <laughs> and, yeah, it was the six-man title. Um, no, as far as the Big Josh uh, matches, good Big Josh matches, I don't – I couldn't tell you. There's an Arn Anderson one, I think, but I yeah. couldn't – That would seem to be a logical um, – That was that – there's – I know I've seen at least one good Big Josh match, and I'm thinking it was against Arn. Yeah, he was definitely better – as a heel, or at least I know him, of course, more as a heel. I mean, there's a lot of good doink. I watched a random doink Backlund match that was like five minutes. But it was yeah, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, I watched that one not too long ago, too. Yeah, it was good. There's yeah, doink, like, it wasn't doink like 93 was pretty awesome. Yeah, doink yeah. was pretty sweet. Yeah, he has uh, good matches against uh, Kurt Henning, Mr. Perfect. Um, I.E. Gennetti. Yeah, Marty Gennetti. Oh, yeah, those are the ones. Uh, well, he does have matches against Perfect, but uh, the ones against Gennetti are the best yeah. ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're really good. Gennetti uh, was, was awesome that year um, as well. But, yeah, anyway, Matt Bourne is one of the guards. And Matt Bourne was um, a longtime Portland guy. His father, tough Tony Bourne, was um, a big star in Portland for years and years. Uh, who else do we have? Rick Hunter. Um, not sure who that was or is. I have no Anybody? idea. I, think I totally should have did, did uh, job or, or bios for these guys. Jobber. Jobber. I'm a, okay. I'm a, I mean, being presumptuous that Rick Hunter was a jobber. Um, his name sounds, sounds like jobber. really, no, that sounds more like a mid card level. Rick Hunter. Yeah. Really? That's kind of a jobber name. I think anyway. <laughs> well, if he was, uh, if he was wrestling in the Russo years, his first name would have been Milf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was 20 years too, too soon for Rick. Um, and I believe there's someone named Johnny Mantell. At first, they were calling, saying Mantel, Mantel, and I was thinking, is that Dutch? Really? Is yeah, that- yeah, I was thinking it was Dutch, too. I guess I just never noticed. No, I'm pretty sure it wasn't Dutch. Yeah. Uh, it was hard sense. to get a good look at a lot of these guys. And Adrian Adonis is another one of the guards. Right. So, basically, let's see. Were they all 
That's my oh, question. Are there any heels in Portland besides Buddy Rhodes and Ed Wiskowski? <laughs> <laughs> you don't need any more when those two are your heels. I guess so. <laughs> I think either Hunter or Mantel were, was a heel, I think. Anyway, so yeah, here we go. Um, yeah, Martin, uh, take it away on this Lumberjack match or Six Guards contest. Yeah, so there's uh, two things to point out in addition to it being Lumberjack in one fall. It is for a title. A really That's... fucking ugly title. It's just yes. champion. <laughs> and uh, so... Bono and skimped on, on expenses for title belts as well. Apparently. I guess it's the Pacific Coast Heavyweight title, not to be yeah. confused with the... Um, what's the Triple Crown title? It's like PWF or something, right? Yeah, Pacific. It, Pacific right. is the P, yeah. Yeah, so this is not the uh, title that ended up being in the All Japan Triple Crown. Uh, there's advertisements that Killer Tim Brooks is coming back. Oh, this is from the promo, and they they doubt whether they doubt the legitimacy of those uh, claims. They say, ah, he's not coming back. You know, he's either hurt or he's a chump or something. Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, this one I thought was a little, was not as good. It suffered the same issue as the Adonis rematch where there was a disconnect between the level of heat. And this one I rationalized was due to the fact it was for a title. So sometimes I, I, I feel like title matches, usually people are like, there's a little bit more at stake than just, you know, I want to beat the living hell out of this guy. I kind of want to make sure I keep my title too. So it felt a little bit more tentative. Uh, I don't like to complain about things that I think wrestlers should do, but I'm going to do it anyways. I thought they could do more to establish the Lumberjack gimmick early. You know, they really didn't play that up until the end. Uh, uh, there was a lot of, you know, wrist locks and uh, head lock, uh, chin locks. Let's see here. Uh, oh, then, so Piper's actually the first one to go out, which I thought was interesting. I thought Rhodes would be the first one to go out. So you have De Beers, uh, Wiskowski, uh, keep rolling them back in. And apparently he pulled the hair. So that's really villain there. And uh, Piper hits a wicked – I can't read my notes. He hit something that was wicked. I'm sorry, guys. And uh, but Rose gets a wicked back body drop. But Rose, uh, Rose telegraphs something. And Jack – I watched this match at 3 in the morning. <laughs> with the Jack Knight – no, Rose didn't win with the Jack Knight cover. It was a two. It was a two count on the Jack Knight cover, and now Rose is getting dumped out, and he's getting he's getting thrown back in, and uh, we get the we get a big knee lift from Piper, which is one of his better moves from what I've seen in the '90s, and Rose does a really good job selling for Piper's uh, knee lift there. Then we're getting more uh, outside antics at this point. Piper misses a drop kick, and at this point, uh, the the announcer Frank says that all oh, Rose has learned a lot in his young career. So it's interesting that even though he's been there for like what three or two years, two to three years, that they're still putting over that you know Rose is wise beyond his years. Mm-hmm. And uh, Piper pulls out the airplane spin, and I thought this was crazy because the announcer goes, "Oh, you don't see this move very often. It's a pretty old timey move." And this is <laughs> <laughs> this move get invented? Oh, the 1890s, I think. Was Frank Gotch doing airplane spins? Farmer <laughs> uh, Burns, maybe. Yeah, and so then the announcer's like, "Oh no, Piper's too dizzy to to uh, capitalize on his newfound advantage," and we get a brawl on the outside. Uh, 
uh, Wiskowski ends up, oh, this is the part where Wiskowski's in the ring, and he's beating on Piper. Stanley Bar looks directly at him and then looks back at the Lumberjacks trying to get Rose back in. And then everybody's favorite uh, maniacal uh, ex-con comes in, Killer Tim Brooks, bad news for slaves. And I guess Ed Wiskowski, the Polish prince, is a slave because he starts beating him up. He's got a big old chain. And uh, after beating him up, the uh, Piper actually ends up winning the match. I thought they were just going to throw the thing out as a clusterfuck, but no. They, they <laughs> finish the match to give it a proper finish, yeah. and uh, Piper wins. Yeah. James? Well, uh, I had a disc problem on this. So, uh, my disc went bad as soon as the camera zoomed into that horrible championship belt. Uh, uh, it looks like they you know, just found some scrap iron in a back alley and wrote on <laughs> champion on it and a, with a Sharpie. Yeah. And then the disc died. And that's, that's all I saw. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, well, that's too bad. I mean, it was, I mean, the first match was, was better. Like the, the, uh, Rose Adonis match. Um, but this one had some good stuff too. Um, the crowd is better than the Rose Adonis rematch. Yeah. Yeah. I would say so. Um, yeah. the crowd is super hot for this. Um, I'm a big fan of, of atmosphere and crowd heats, and so this one definitely had that. Piper, you can see, was becoming more and more of a baby face. You know, he was actually smiling at the crowd, and, and the crowd, you know, embraced him totally. Yeah, there was a lot of we want Piper. They like to chant yeah. we want Piper instead of let's go Piper, which I always thought was weird. Like, Yeah, that's something, yeah, that I thought. They always do that. Even if the, whenever the guy's in, in the ring, they, they chant we want whoever, right? They don't say go whoever go. Yeah, huh. it's, it's maybe it's a quirk of, of Portland. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Was was the uh, guy in the front row mesmerized once again with his mouth open for this match? Uh, I don't have that noted. <laughs> they did not focus on him, but I would only imagine that there was a little bit of drool there. Yeah. <laughs> and then the pop for Killer Brooks making the save was huge. Like, it was huge. pretty big. I mean, they got Brooks over huge with that uh, <laughs> angle. Oh, totally. I, because back in those days, you know, an angle like that, you know, I'm assuming they didn't do too often. Um, and so, yeah, you know, huge um, development at the end with Brooks coming back. And the feud is just getting going, basically. Uh, right. From, There's uh, some sort of Rose-Brooks match. Yes. Do we have it? Or? Yeah, yes, it's in the, yeah, it's in the footage, yeah. I believe. A dog collar or a chain match. Right. Either Which a dog collar chain or a regular chain. Oh yeah, yeah I saw some of that. Yeah, because the main feud actually after this is is Brooks versus Buddy for a while, and then, oh, was was Piper leaving? Uh no, Piper uh, is still around. Um, the sheep herders, or is that, that after? Kept, yeah later? Because at the end of '79 is when the it gets kicked up another notch. I know I've read somewhere. I think it was on uh, in Kayfabe Memories. They have those um, territory recaps. I don't know if you guys have ever read them. Mm-hmm. Boy, that go pretty in depth into some of the stuff, and they were talking about how the Rose Piper feud started, and then Piper did leave for a bit and came back as the special referee for a match between, I want to say Buddy and Pardee, and at the end of it, Piper got uh, <laughs> Rose jabbed Piper in the eye with something. I guess that was a, a Rose specialty. Jesus. And so anyway, that rekindled the feud from there. And then later, where we get uh, later in the footage, is the main feud between Rose and Piper, where it's it's just them. And uh, Killer Brooks is out of the picture at that point. Um, but yeah, 
there's a lot of gaps. And then, like I said, with the footage being all jumbled up, it's hard to tell what happened when and where. So anyway, yeah, this, you know, this was, uh, this was good. I really wish we had, you know, more of Rose and Piper, like as it, cause it progresses to cage matches and, uh, hair versus hair matches between the two of them and loser leaves town matches between the two of them. But as far as I know, those were all from the, the Tuesday uh, special shows. Oh, and so none of those were recorded? None of those are on film. Oh, oh man. I know. Rough. So, so much Don, out there. Don Owen should have brought in Super 8 from the East Coast. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. We could have at least had that. we got to find some Super 8 uh, Philadelphia footage. we got to make that our mission to find that. Yeah. Eventually yeah. somewhere. It's got to be out there, you'd think. Sometimes I get this feeling and I don't know what to say. Is it that I don't belong here because I really want to stay? Sometimes I wish that you could break up to me. Is this real? Is this real? Is this real? Anyway, so actually, I guess when I wrote down what we were watching or going over today, I think I had Martell versus Harley race in between um, the Rose Adonis and Rose uh, Piper matches, but oh well, we'll go on to that next. So basically, um, like I talked about before, Buddy was the man who taped all these uh, shows originally. So of course you're going to get pretty much almost exclusively Buddy Rose footage. Um, You can tell that he was just taping his matches because you get like the start of a following match and then it abruptly cuts off. And yeah. then next, you know, you have another buddy match. But uh, so I did want to, you know, get another match or get a match uh, to look at a match that doesn't involve Buddy Rose just for the sake of, you know, saying, well, Portland wasn't just exclusively the Buddy Rose show. Um, so the one I chose is a match for the NWA world title from January 12th, 1980. So of all the footage we're watching, uh, we've watched this is the, the oldest footage. Or the newest footage, I guess I should say. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and so we have Harley Race, who at the time was the NWA World Champion and had been pretty much for three years, um, other than a brief period where he lost, lost to Giant Baba in Japan uh, for like a week. Um, and he's going against uh, Rick Martel. Woo! Uh, yes, famous, pretty famous uh, wrestler. Uh, even if you're just sort of a casual wrestling fan, you would remember Rick, um, for his run as the Rick the Model Martel in the WWF in the early 90s. And a, a long stretch, <laughs> long stretch in the WWF, actually, probably about six or seven years. Um, uh, Rick's always been one of my favorites. I, I love him as a babyface, love him as, as the model. I mean, when the model stuff was happening, I was I was pretty, pretty into it. Uh, I was starting to get into uh, heels at that time. I was a you know, I, a surly teenager kind of, and it was cool to start rooting for the heels in the early nineties. So Martel was definitely one that, uh, my friends and I love, um, for the model gimmick. And anyway, at this time he's, he's very young. Um, probably had been in the business for a good five or six or so years at this time. Um, as far as I know, there's not much pre 1980 footage of Rick Martel out there. This is some of the earliest stuff you'll find, actually, I think. Um, yeah. And he was pushed huge in Portland as basically the 
the new top baby face. Uh, well, next to Piper, I guess they would have been A and B or one and two. And so anyway, this was, you know, at that time, you know, the NWA world champion toured the country. Um, Portland was a part of the NWA and had been from the very beginning, 1948. And so every probably once or twice a year, I guess the NWA world champ would come in for uh, some matches. And uh, so this was during one of those times when Harley was touring that part of the country. And he's against uh, young Rick Martel here. And, um, yeah, Martin, what did you think of this match? So I'm a pretty big uh, Rick Martel fan. Uh, I watched uh, quite a bit of the AWA stuff when he was champion, and I yeah. watched his tag team stuff in Strike Force. And actually the model stuff it is pretty good. It, he doesn't drop off as much as some of the, uh, like Henning does. Like Henning, I feel like, kind of drops off quite a bit when he becomes Mr. Perfect. I don't feel like Martel had the same uh, fall. But uh, so this is the earliest Martel match I've ever watched. This is actually the earliest Harley Race match I have ever watched. I have not. I don't think I've watched anything earlier than um, the Flair Race stuff from '83. Okay. Uh, so I do. Uh, you know, I, I've read about Harley Race. You know, you read some things. Uh, for lack of a better term, that he was kind of a spot monkey. Um, and that's a pretty bad term. I mean, you just like you, you'll hear criticisms that he'll throw spots out there, um, and that uh, that he actually. Uh, you know, he wrestled a very similar style to Flair and that, and you actually do see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, like one of the first things you see is race does a corner bump. Uh, you know, he hooks the thing and falls over and he goes over the top rope and he's just like, DQ, it's over. DQ him. <laughs> just let me get out of here type thing. Which is something you feel like Flair would do or someone, you know, kind of that, um, begging off. I don't really want to fight this local hero, do anything to save my title type thing. Um, and then they work uh, the normal, you know, uh, Martel uses the arm bar as, a, uh, as the crux of his match. Uh, Race is really good about keeping things moving, not just sitting in the arm bar. And uh, Race finally takes, uh, Race does a high knee, but he ends up taking the, uh, the flare. Um, well, I see it shouldn't be the flare move, because, but, you know, flare's the one when you think of doing it, where, you know, he go, gets the press slam off the top rope. And uh, we hit the sleeper hold, which is a pretty famous, uh, which is, it seems like a pretty popular NWA title spot. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, uh, so Race ends up hot-shotting Martel. You see the infamous uh, Race pile driver, which is what I think people really get annoyed with him about, <laughs> is that he hits the pile driver, but he doesn't get the three. He kind of just keeps moving on from the pile driver. So that gets some people's dander up. Yeah. And then uh, we get the standing headbutt, which gets two for Harley Race. Harley Race definitely known for his headbutts. Uh, eventually, uh, Race gets the uh, delayed vertical suplex for the three, which is, I thought, interesting. Uh, you typically, I feel like I've typically seen in two out of three falls matches, you'll get uh, the babyface winning early, actually, rather than digging themselves in a hole. This is mm-hmm. more stereo. This is more like how a normal match would, I guess, progress in a one-fall setting, where it's kind of like now you're in a heat segment. The babyface has to come back from this one-nothing deficit. Uh, Harley is on top at the beginning. Martel ends up hitting a um, ab, ab stretch. Where are we going from here? This is one. This is the match that I haven't didn't watch recently. I watched this match like a month ago, so I'm totally going based off notes. 
Martel hits a pile driver, but Race gets his foot on the ropes, which is actually a pretty good sell of the pile driver for everyone who mm-hmm. gets annoyed about Race pile drivers. There you go. Race begs off, very flair-like. So you can see, I know I've read about this, that the NWA champion, I, I think I've heard people claim all the way back to Luthez would do this. So yeah. it's just a style that because we have all the flair footage, we think of flair doing it, but it's a style that's been done since pretty much the get-go. Oh, totally. And then, so you end up, Race does a suplex, and then I can't read my notes. What the hell happened? <laughs> I don't know. Someone's going to have to tell me what happened. I thought Race did a suplex, but then I have Martel winning. Martel's so on with the with the in there. Yeah. For the second fall? Yeah, sleeper uh, on Race for the second fall. Oh, he fell. Oh, it's a crossbody or something? No. Yeah, no, no, actually, uh, Martel put Race in the sleeper, put him out. Oh, he put him in the sleeper. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was sorry, he went off the sleeper. Okay. And that's what I like about two out of three falls matches is it puts over moves that typically wouldn't be. I mean, I guess it's 1980, so it's a little bit different. But still, you have the, the ability to put over more transition moves or what would become transition moves as fall enders. Yeah. And so then we end up in the uh, the third fall. And uh, it's pretty – at this point, you know, they've been going for quite a bit of time, so you don't expect uh, too long of a fall, and you don't really get that. It's uh, pretty hot. Uh, Race ends up uh, missing the uh, headbutt, and uh, Martel actually puts him in the sleeper, and the uh, bell expires. So, unfortunately for our uh, valiant hero, we, he's not mm-hmm. able to uh, defeat Harley Race, and Race is saved by the bell. Yeah. Jim? It was a pretty good match. I remember really liking it. And I thought, well, now that I've seen the Piper match more recently, I would probably put the Piper Rose match over it. But I, I like this match quite a bit. I thought I thought they were both really good in their respective roles. Mm-hmm. James? Yeah, Harley Race is uh, obviously one of my favorites. And he's big here in, in, in Kansas and in Wichita in this region. Uh, yeah. He's the second name that gets mentioned here <laughs> in, uh, in Wichita when we talk to older fans, uh, Bulldog Bob Brown, of, of course, is more, more legendary around here than Harley Race somehow. Uh, that's a, that's kind of embarrassing, but that's, that, it, it that's typical of Wichita. Uh, anyway, uh, so I'm a big fan, but I'm more of a fan of the idea of Harley Race than, then opposed to like actually sitting down and watching his matches, I don't know yeah. if that makes sense. But no, uh, no, I, no I totally understand that. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah is uh, and as far as Rick Martel goes, um, I think he's an excellent wrestler, but uh, he never really did much for me. I don't know why. Um, you know, I like his stuff just fine, but it's, he's never a guy that I really paid much attention to. Um, I thought this match was okay. I don't think I liked it as well as Martin did, but. Um, there's too much inactivity with all the arm work. I'm channeling Parv here, but I got <laughs> bored with the, with the arm work. And then uh, I always now I know that's the that's the deal with the NWA champion to go around and make you know the top guys in the other territories look good. But I always think Harley gives too much in his matches. But you know he's he's a, a hell of a bumper. I mean he's like it's like perfect, beautiful bumping it's it's not the same style necessarily as buddy rose and adonis but um yeah uh 
And then I was bummed out by the by the finish of the third fall. I never heard the bell. No, I think the announcer said no, I don't think you were supposed to hear the bell. Oh, well, that – yeah, that didn't – I didn't like that. But I yeah, did like how – Yeah, and then uh, it's kind of cool with the sleeper that, you know, it lets Martell win a fall, but Harley doesn't have to get pinned. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I guess it was okay. I might need to watch this again because uh, I didn't – yeah, it was just okay to me. It didn't do a uh, lot for me. Yeah, no, that, I agree. It was just incredible. happens to be my favorite match, so that might like my favorite type of match. So I probably I do tend to overwrite these matches because I do like the style a lot. Yeah, well, never apologize for liking wrestling. Yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. No, Harley Race. That was a good point about liking the idea of race more than the actual man or his output or whatever um yeah he does give way too much like that's something that like a complaint that comes up about how the nwa champion too often or it's usually a complaint against flair right uh the nwa champ never looked like they were the top wrestler right because they always got their asses kicked they barely won the match i mean i understand the philosophy of wanting to put the young guy over strong obviously martel wasn't going to win the title um and it was good because Martel was the, the hometown guy, the guy who was staying in Portland. Harley was just going to be there for a couple of shows and then gone. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, it, it, the more, the older I get, the more I, you know, when I think of that, it, it's just, yeah, the, the NWA champion shouldn't, I mean, you, there's ways to do it where I don't think you have to make the champion look so weak or so unimpressive. Right. I mean, there's times when Flair does it. I haven't, so I haven't watched enough Harley Race to try to defend him, but I think there's ways when Flair does it where he's, you know, he's punching and he's chopping and he's. Yeah. Oh, I think the criticism against Flair is, is over, you know, it's, it's, there's, it's, um, overstated, um, about Flair being the bitch and, and that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. You know, uh, Race, I can't say I've been blown away by a lot of the stuff I've seen of him, but I haven't seen a lot. The Starcade 83 cage match has never been one that I, I thought very highly yeah, of. Yeah, I don't like that match. Um, this real disconnect between who Harley Race is, like as a promo, like grizzled and tough. And yeah. <laughs> right, and James, of course, you're famous on PWO for your Harley Race uh, through history thread, <laughs> which is one of the classics of all time. That's, that, that's, that's a perfect like example of the idea of Race being better than the actual... Um, right, the wrestler, because he, yeah, he does. He looks like a badass, tough guy wrestler, who you know should have been, you know, one of the all-time greats. Um, yeah, I think if we saw some of his earlier stuff, he's a guy that you know. Remember, he started in the early '60s. He had this whole tag team with uh, Larry the Axe Hedig, that was supposedly awesome. That, you know, as far as I know, there's not a single shred of footage of them together. That's too bad. Um, I know, because, yeah, you would think that would have been some some awesome matches with them. And then a lot of his stuff in Kansas City, I don't think that exists. Um, yeah, even... we need more, like, violent Harley Race, unless, like, you, you would imagine, because there's plenty of Flair matches where Flair does brawling and does violence. Exactly. You figure there's got to be a couple matches where Harley Race isn't just the NWA champion that he's, you know, he's going to go on the outside and there's going to be some blood and stuff. Yeah. And I mean, the thing was by the late seventies, he was pretty much exclusively the NWA world champion up until Flair had the, his first run. Right. So but, uh, yeah, I would imagine there would be, still be some, I don't know. 
Yeah, I just haven't watched enough. I know there's a lot in Japan from the mid-70s out there late before he was uh, NWA champ. Well, maybe not a lot, but there's some that I've noticed on YouTube that I haven't watched, and we'll see. Well, there'd be more Harley on the mat. I mean, it would, which could be interesting. But. Yeah. Martel, I've uh, always liked him, and, and now uh, in uh, recently there's a lot of stuff with the AWA, his AWA run, and there was Portland run where, you know, he was a really, really good baby face. And um, just, you know, he was great. There's matches later you guys will have to check out between him and Buddy Rose. Um, Ooh, that that yeah, sounds awesome. Come from just slightly after this, or after the footage that we have uh, ends, uh, him and Buddy have a, a long run um, of matches, and uh, it's on YouTube, and um, they're really good. Like, the better, best matches that I've seen of Portland. So far, our uh, Martel versus Buddy Rose matches. I could definitely uh, see that. Yeah, yeah, they were like men for each other. It's a perfect uh, combination. <laughs> yeah. They really work well together. Yeah, this match was just just okay. Uh, very much an example of an NWA World Title match from the time, with um, uh, the babyface or the challenger getting one one of the falls, and then the third fall ending with uh, no finish. <laughs> Lastly, we have um, a pretty famous moment in um, Portland wrestling history. Um, it's from the end of 1979, December 1st, 1979 to be exact. And it starts out, the basically, like I mentioned before, the Piper-Rose feud has been rekindled. Um, the match that we're going to look at is uh, Roddy Piper versus Stan the Man Stasiak, or Stanislaus, as Frank Bonima um, first room numerous times throughout the match. Polish and power. It's Polish power. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and they're taking on uh, the sheep herders, um, uh, or else otherwise known as the Kiwis at this time, and uh, later to be known, of course, as the Bushwhackers, um, a team that when I was uh, going through that those years, late 80s, early 90s, I just absolutely despised. Oh, With yeah. all my heart, I hated the Bushwhackers, and, and Hacksaw just dug in. Those three, I just, oh, I hated them so much. Until this day, to this day, I still I, I hate them. But anyways, <laughs> for, before they were the Bushwhackers, they were, you know, pretty legendary as, like, the bloodthirsty, crazed heel tag team involved in a lot of barbed wire. Like, the first time I ever, I think, read about a barbed wire match, it was the Sheepherders versus the Fantastics uh, from, like, 1986-87, UWF, I believe. Um here, you know, they're they're they have long hair, <laughs> very much, very different looking than they would later become. Actually, I believe they first started teaming together, believe it or not, in the mid '60s. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> I know. And they're freaking ancient in New Zealand. <laughs> I know, and they're still are they still like working? Today? I think one of them is. I, I think I believe at least one of them is still working. Oh my god, <laughs> we've come across some guys in in Titans of Wrestling so far that are just. The longevity of their careers is just staggering. <laughs> it's like five decades is like no big deal for a lot of these guys. <laughs> Dominic Danucci and Bull Curry and oh my god. But anyway, so the, this is um, this tag match is basically the setup for like a big angle at the end. And um, so maybe we'll look. We'll go over the the match first. 
and then discuss the the angle separately. So yeah, Piper versus Stasiak, or Piper and Stasiak versus the Sheepherders. Uh, Martin, take it away. All right. So this one was uh, I watched this a little differently. So I've been telling my dad that I've been watching all this Portland stuff, and I was like, oh yeah, this Buddy Rose guy, he's great, he's great. And so he like finally sits down and watches. And it's this match. This is that match he happens to watch, which is, like, really unfortunate. And he sees Stan Stasiak, and he's like, I know that guy. That guy sucks. Who is that? Who's that? And I'm like, that's uh, Stan the Man Stasiak. He's like, well, why do I know him? I'm like, because he won the title from Pedro. He's like, oh, yeah, that guy really did suck. And this match did not help Stasiak's cause with my father, who just thought his drop kicks were, like, the most unathletic thing he's ever seen. My dad's really into athleticism and coordination, so he actually prefers wrestling from nowadays, which is really interesting. Like he's like, yeah. "Wow, people are so much more coordinated now. This looks so much better." And so it's weird. I know a lot of people on our site like the uh, the older stuff, but yeah, that's my dad for you. And uh, there's one Piper cross body block in this, and it was just like, as soon as I saw it, I put my uh, palm to my face, and my dad was like, oh, Piper sucks. <laughs> <laughs> my dad never liked Piper, and he was just rolling, knowing that, oh, look. I'm like, Dad, you got to watch the Piper Road stuff. He's like, why bother? He sucks still. I knew it all along. I was like, damn it, Dad. So that was pretty much the match. I, I don't really remember much. About, uh, this, the angle was really good. I'll talk about it, but it was kind of a face palm moment for me trying to show old wrestling to my dad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to start off with a question. What was Dutch Savage exactly? I mean, was he touted as like the commissioner or was he just like a an asshole that came out and talked down to the heels? I feel like he was like sheriff. Yeah. Yeah. Did he do the ring announcing for this match? Or no, he doesn't. Yeah, he did do it. Yeah, he did it for one of them, for sure. Yeah. He's such a homer. I mean, he, oh, he right. just he was blatantly... the referee. Yeah. <laughs> in oh, his yeah. wrestling gear, he was the referee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Dutch Savage is a guy I started out, you know, I liked him. And by this point in the footage, I had enough of the guy. Either fucking wrestle or stay the fuck out of the camera range. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it, it makes sense that he was booking because, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it, anyway, this is more about the angle than the match, but, um, yeah. you guys notice that, well, how could you not notice the, <laughs> where they do a 10 count on the wrenching of the, the headlock, Yeah, you know, it's, you know, Bob Backlund does it and, and oh, that yeah. seems to be a spot of the day, you know, oh, I don't know totally. how far back it goes, but I, I, I it's okay, I guess, but it's. No, I was wondering. Like that spot. That was the spot my dad actually liked. He's like, you should bring that back. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder why, like, especially if you're doing it early in the match when they're not when they're not worn down as much, it'd be so easy just to get out of it and just blast the guy. You know. When he's, <laughs> yeah, I know. So, I, oh, Sam, I actually do like the uh, the arm, the uh, the headlock wrenching spot. So I because I, I do like back one. So I I did enjoy that. So me and my dad enjoyed that one element. <laughs> yeah, no, Backlund's headlock spots are, they can't be beat. And it's, this is another case, it's so weird seeing Stan Stasiak as a beloved baby face. And, uh, and with a man, mustache. He really, <laughs> yeah, and he, it's a crazy sideburns or something, yeah. too. Yeah, awesome. Uh, but he's, you know, he's more out of shape than his oh, earlier oh. Uh, WWF days. And then, what? Uh, you know, God bless him, he tries, but a fired-up Stasiak is about the famous thing I've ever seen in my life. I, he does I did a little... pop for the dropkicks. 
because I couldn't believe that he dished out two drop kicks. Well, and that one that missed by about 16 feet, and, <laughs> yeah. and uh, one of the one of the Kiwis takes a bump clear to the floor off of that. <laughs> yeah, he did. Oh my God, we were rolling, laughing on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> no, they were they were pretty bad. And yeah, no, Stasiak looked like you know a very elderly man, like his body. <laughs> Just yeah, well, I, he probably wasn't too terribly old, but his body just looked about twenty, thirty years older than his head. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he worked too terribly much longer after this. Uh, I could be wrong, but I would hope not. Anyway, so yeah, basically the 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 angle we've been talking about, it actually happens like throughout the match. Um, at the beginning, Buddy or no, Piper takes off his kilt and and throws it in Buddy's face. Who's at ringside, right? And um, Buddy uh, grabs the kilt and then rips it up right as the match starts. You know, and of course, this is obviously like a huge emotional blow to, to Roddy. And he sells it that way. And then, let's see, the, the baby faces win the first fall, correct? And then it's during the second fall that Rose gets up in the crow's nest with the kilt and sets the kilt on fire. And Piper sells this by going totally ballistic and, and abandons Stasiak mid-match to go up to the crow's nest. And then this is the great spot where it goes back to the ring and suddenly Stasiak's unconscious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> something's happened that, that we missed. <laughs> but that's the end of Stan. He's done. And basically what makes this angle so great is the kilt. Piper comes up, the kilt's ablaze. And and Piper tries to put it out, and it's just the out of control. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a legitimate fire. Like the people could like you know smoke inhalation was could have been problematic. <laughs> I love how they did like a sp- split screen effect where they had one half was showing what was going on in the ring, and the second half is Piper trying to put out the burning kilt. Um, <laughs> and now you could tell he's like, oh screw this, I'm not going any, you know any further <laughs> with this. You know, uh, the the flames and suddenly smoke is everywhere. And there's a great story surrounding this that, you know, this was you know, quite a while, actually, after they stopped filming live. But fans were still calling in. They called into the fire department in Portland and said, you got to get down to the, the Portland Sports Arena because there's a fire has broken out, you know, uh, we're watching this. And so they thought it was live still. And then the fire department goes down there and, and they, they arrive at the sports arena and it's closed and the lights are off. <laughs> and it's it's there's no fire obviously because it happened you know two three hours uh, before right but that's yeah hilarious. That, yeah that's like a legendary story that the yeah, the fire department came even though of course it, it hadn't happened but the fire did look you know like potentially dangerous <laughs> I don't know oh, if they yes. really planned it you know it was like oh yeah we'll we'll, we'll set the kilt on fire you know. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting. But that oh, whole no. that whole area was like 100% plywood. Yeah, I mean, you know. It could have gone up at any yeah. point. I, I'm assuming they probably had someone on the standing by with a fire extinguisher, probably. <laughs> I would but hope. Anyway, this was, it was classic, like the image of Piper running up there. It was like Jimi Hendrix and the guitar, setting the guitar on fire. Like a moment <laughs> like that. <laughs> it was totally rock and roll. I loved that. That was so cool. Well, and, I was, oh, go ahead. And yeah, no, and I was just going to say, you know, that basically, how does this end? Uh, Piper actually went back to wrestle. The, yeah, he went to wrestle the third fall by himself <laughs> <laughs> after the kilt burning. 
And then, uh, yes, this is where Sav- or Savage pulls double duty and makes the announcement of the uh, the end of the match uh, being a DQ. So he was the referee and the, the ring announcer as well. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. And then post-match, we have, like, a ridiculously bloody uh, Piper. Oh, what? how does Piper get busted open again? Um, that was the eye, wasn't it? Again? Right. Um, yes, Putty, Buddy interferes and rakes Savage in the eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, God. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then in, in this fracas, Piper gets busted open. So this is the end of the match. That's where the DQ comes from. All of this happening after the kilt was set ablaze, you know, during the second fall. And then Piper is just awesome, awesome. One of the all-time best crimson masks. Afterwards. Oh, yeah. <laughs> promo where the blood is in his teeth. <laughs> <laughs> and he's cutting this promo about the burned kilt. And, Family's uh, honor. Yeah, basically. Like, this must have drew, like, a huge house. And, like, you know, this was, like, such an awesome angle to, to put over the feud between these two guys. So what did you guys, uh, Martin, what did you think about the uh, the last bit, basically? Or even the, the whole kilt burning angle. Oh yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was a, it was an excellent angle to further the issue on a part we didn't watch for this show, but watched for, or I just watched because it was on the disc. Was he broke Piper's bagpipes? Right. And I could have sworn Piper did something to Rose. It wasn't his hair, even though Rose had been really like hyping his Playboy hair matches. But I feel like Piper took something of Rose's and broke it. I can't remember what it was. But anyway, yeah. yeah, I think it was a great escalation. It's a way to keep the feud hot because um, it's pretty long running at this point. This is about December, and they had originally started in April, correct? Yep, and it would go on well into 1980. Yeah, oh, yeah so it was a good way to escalate the feud, keep it, uh, keep it, yeah, keep it small, uh, you know, burning. <laughs> literally, yeah. Yeah, literally burning. <laughs> Yeah, James, any thoughts? Uh, one thing I, that I kind of liked, but for the wrong reasons, is that yeah, you know, there's a an inferno, and this announcer is so laid back about it. He's like, <laughs> yeah, "Well, there's a fire up here, man. I can't breathe." <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, and then he said, like towards the end, he's like, "Yeah, and uh, we have a, a clear." sign that says no smoking ha, 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 ha. <laughs> it's just so laid back about it and if jim ross was announcing this he would have needed a defib- defibrillator and oxygen oh, you yeah. know at the end of it and <laughs> the guy is so casual and the whole building could have gone up at any moment <laughs> yeah so frank bonima is a really good announcer um really yeah. good um great perfectly calm like uh, always <laughs> calm never never really once raises his voice or anything hardly no no, not really, no. Yeah, it's a good style. Yeah, so no, this, this I think, ends things on a high note. You know, this was one of the, the great angles in Portland history with the flames, with the burnt kilt. And um, we're, uh, we're at the end here. I've got to get running uh, for Canadian Thanksgiving commitments. Uh, yeah, thank I'm, you. I'm on the clock. Yes, thank you. Um, so we'll just quickly uh, run things down here. Um, so basically, uh, final thoughts on what we watched and on Portland, uh, Martin, I'll start with you. Um, definitely want to watch more. Uh, definitely only just whetted the appetite. I can see why people are touting Buddy, uh, Buddy Rose to be as great 
as uh, they say he is. Um, you know, obviously not that level yet because I haven't watched all the matches. Yeah. And uh, so definitely want to watch more Buddy. Uh, I thought this was, you know, this was really great and me appreciating Piper more. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else here. Adrian Adonis is a baby face. Was, uh, was surprisingly convincing. Uh, did not expect that. And we, he did a pretty good job there. And I thought they ran some pretty hot angles. It was pretty good TV. I mean, this is all TV. I think we've, yeah, we've mentioned that multiple times. So it's yeah. pretty incredible what they're giving away on TV, what we're getting to see. And yet it still makes you want to go to the house show. Because we're constantly saying that too. Throughout this whole podcast, like, ah, oh, we're groaning that, you know, the stuff isn't taped. So. Oh, I know. I just, it is a shame in, in one sense, but. That's unfortunately the nature of, you know, pre-1980s wrestling is it's really, really sparse, the footage. But, uh, yeah, no, they, they, I mean, for example, uh, Stampede Wrestling, a promotion I grew up with, they didn't give away this degree on TV, I wouldn't think. And they notoriously clipped all their matches to all hell. Right, so, yeah. 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 So, no, Portland was really generous with what they delivered on TV, that's for sure. Uh, James, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I thought all this stuff was really awesome. Um, I mean, I guess I was a little critical of some of it, but as a whole, you know, I came in all totally cold. I'd never seen a five seconds of Portland footage before this. And now I, I want to see everything that's available. That, that that's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. And I want to see more buddy and we will see more buddy, uh, you know, later on in some Titans episodes, but, uh, um, that's for sure. Yeah. It's a really fun territory and uh yeah i just want to see as much as much as i possibly can from portland yeah yeah that reminds me i've never seen the buddy rose backland stuff from wwf in 82 oh man you guys yeah. know yeah. yeah it's pretty good it's yeah. Uh, yeah they had some really good matches and adonis oh. adonis and backland yeah. too from... yeah for whatever reason i haven't watched backland's matches from 82 i've watched all the other years yeah really? i haven't seen the adonis match either uh, oh I man it's considered oh. one of the best yeah I, that's the one I'm one of the ones I'm really looking forward to watching. Yeah, Maybe the most fantastic. of all of them. Yeah. Yeah. No, not disappoint. No, Portland's uh, real fun and um, it's widely available now on, on YouTube um, in various different uh, forms. Um, so definitely check it out. Like the stuff that comes after what we've watched is it gets more and more abundant and it's out there. Um, like I mentioned before, Matt D on uh PWO is really burning through the, the Portland right now and writing some really great reviews there. Like his analysis, for example, of Buddy Rose in 1979. I don't know if you guys read that post. It was like a basically a college level essay on um, on Buddy Rose in 1979. It's really oh, wow. Like, yeah, check that out. I'll have to, I have not ventured into the thread. I, I like uh, James, came in totally cold, never seeing any Portland. And I tried to actually not even read the thread either. Oh, yeah, yeah, same here, same here. It's really detailed, and um, his analysis of Rose, it's, uh, like I said, it was, you know, definitive. Like, I don't think anyone's ever done a better job of, like, um, an analyzing Buddy Rose as a wrestler. It's really, really good stuff. Um, so, yeah, this was fun, guys. Uh, we'll have to do it again. Um, maybe Portland again, um, for sure. That's oh, yeah. been sort of discussed. Um, to do another Portland show. And I definitely have a whole bunch of ideas about um, other territories, other areas that I want to look at. Luthez is something I've, I've tinkered around with. I want to like dive into Luthez in the, in the 1950s and 
you know, just have an opinion on him finally, you know, because yeah. he's a guy, like an all-time legend that you just, you don't really know anything other than a legend, right? So. Mm -hmm. Right. Want to go into it? Well, thanks, guys. Thanks, Martin, for joining us. Hopefully this will be the first of many. Uh, yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. I'm going to uh, the game one of the ALCS tonight, but I'm actually not a Red Sox fan, even though I live in Boston. I'm a Tigers fan. So let's go, Tigers. And I'm pretty excited about that tonight. Right. You awesome. go to, you go to uh, the University of Michigan or you, you did? I went to the University of Michigan. Uh, long story short, my dad kicked my ass in wiffle ball a lot. And to get revenge, I decided to become a fan of a different team. The first team I saw live beat the Red Sox would be the team that I'd be a fan of. Back in 96, I saw the Tigers beat them. Tigers sucked, went on to having the worst oh, record yeah. in baseball. But now I am reaping the rewards. So let's go, Tigers. This is a series I've been dreaming of forever. It's me versus my father. I was, <laughs> it would have been hotter back in when I was eight because then I would have really gotten emotional. I've kind of like <laughs> mellowed out on the whole thing. I, I love my father. so. But still, let's go Tigers. Yeah, I'm definitely pulling for the Tigers too. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be good. Um, awesome. And James again, uh, we're uh, making our way through the WWF on an almost sort of like a bi-weekly basis here, I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah. Or uh, by month. Awesome. I'm not. So I'm not part of the show, and it's just sweet. I always love listening to it. You guys are always uh, pretty uh, funny, and uh, but you still got the analysis. You got the great biographies. <laughs> I would have never known that Dominic Danucci was such a hardcore legend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he's been a revelation. I, I'm, I'm becoming obsessed with Dominic. He's up for the Hall of Fame in uh, Meltzer, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think Danucci's a serious candidate. Um, too bad. I was pulling for him. Oh, yeah, I am too now. He's, he's yeah. a yeah. of my Still wrestling, maybe, you know, he wrestled last year. Maybe uh, he's got another match in him. I'm hoping. He uh, was I yeah. went to the Hall of Fame induction ceremony for Bruno because it was in New York City. Yeah. And uh, he was there. Awesome. Him and well, Bruno are, like, super best friends. Oh, so. yeah. Mm -hmm. I yeah. yeah, they were the... Uh, you know, the Italian mafia in the, in the 70s, WWF. It was a click, basically. Yeah. Uh, a whole bunch of those guys. It's, uh, yeah, it's really cool. Okay, guys. Well, I got to get uh, going here before I get in trouble. Um, uh, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And thanks uh, for being here, guys. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, next time, Titans of Wrestling back to WWF. Peace out, guys. See ya. See ya. Bye-bye. Dick will have a